Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, October the 11th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Rev Radio. Royal, excuse me. I don't want to slide him a day. Good morning, Freehold. So today is the day. Freehold's always struggling with the buttons. I mean, you're the guy in charge of the buttons, and you're always struggling with the buttons. As long as your mic is on, that's what matters. Well, I mean, that's not all that matters, because we've got a baseball game to talk about Ooh, today. That's right? right. At 107, the Atlanta Braves host the Philadelphia Phillies. Freehold is a big Phillies fan, rocking the Phillies jersey, excuse me, the T-shirt yesterday um, in celebration of their advancing in the wild card game or wild card series, beating the Mets um, to the tune of, uh, I think it was two to one. It went three games, right? I don't know if you saw this. No, it was two. Okay, it was two. I thought it was. They didn't have a, um, the Padres and uh, who's the Padres play? The Mets. Yeah, the Mets. I mean, the Padres and Mets went three games. The Cardinals and Phillies went two games. That's the one I'm thinking about. Speaking to the um, speaking to the Padres and um, and Phillies, only Padres and Mets. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um, there was a an investigation done on the pitcher for the uh, Joe Mus uh, Joe Musgrove is the pitcher for the um the San Diego Padres. He was um hurling, wheeling, dealing a one hitter through seven innings when um Buck Showalter. Manager of the New York Mets asked to um, ask for the uh, the umpire to check whether or not he had a foreign substance, and they checked his ears were kind of shiny. I'll have to admit they were. That may or may not have been sweat, but um, in the in the world of data, I mean everything has a data point. Everything is referred to as data, velocity, uh, exit velocity, launch angle. You know all these other sorts of things. They went back. Um, the gods of baseball went back and reviewed some of the um, statistics and data of Joe Musgrove's exemplary pitching performance and found out that his um, his spin rate was much higher than usual. Now, you can say it's about adrenaline and he's amped up and it's a big game and he's ready to play and he's really locked in. Maybe, maybe not. But um, he threw 24, 41% of his um, pitches were four fiends seen fastballs, 25 were cutters, 12% were curveballs, 10% sinkers, 8% sliders, 3% of his pitches were changeup. He's a power pitcher, so he didn't throw many changeup or, or sliders. Um, but when you look at the max men, the, the maximum spin rate on his pitches, the minimum spin rate on his pitches, and what the major league average is, he's off the charts. I mean, he really and truly was. The spin rate, let's use this as an example, the four-seam fastball. Um, that was his dominant pitch. That was 41% of the pitches he threw. Um, his max spin rate was 2,802. His minimal spin rate was 2,472. That's an average of 2,663. The major league average for the year was 2,559. When you go to um, his cutter, 2,876 high, 24,19 low, um, the average 2,707. The uh, excuse me, his average twenty seven oh seven. His his yearly average was twenty five eighty one. The major league average is twenty five forty four. So not only was he much in in excess of what the yearly major league baseball average, he was a um, he just had a better fastball than he ever had. He had a better cutter than he ever had. Hmm. Had a better curveball than he ever had by a pretty good margin. When you look at the spin rate, and the spin rate normally dictates um. An indication of maybe or maybe not substance abuse is happening. Is there something the guy's doctoring the baseball with 
so they can grip it differently and get that extra spin. I mean, that's a big deal. And I'm telling you, man, these major league hitters are like scientists. You know, we talk about Breeze being kind of a self-taught chemist when it comes to weightlifting and bodybuilding and strength training and all that. These major league players, I mean, they, they normally say, hey, hey, he's got his stuff today. Well, I mean, of course he does. He's got Vaseline behind his ear. You know, he's got some sort of advantage. He's got a uh, a file, you know, in his pocket, or he's got something he's doctoring the baseball with. Um, I don't have any idea, but they did do kind of a um, an extensive uh, – That was pretty weird. Data dive. Well, it really was. When, when I mean, they it, did it during the game, it was weird. But, it, you know, I would imagine there's some gamesmanship there. You know, you got a guy locked in, really throwing well. But, uh, Trying but to no, throw him off a little bit. But, but, I mean, if you've sat in as many dugouts as Buck Showwater has, and you see a guy – They've probably seen Musgrove before. They, they've seen film on him. I'm sure of that. And all of a sudden, the pitcher looks like he's got another gear. You know, this guy is not – we've not seen him look this good. I mean, he looks like a Cy Young Award winner, and he normally doesn't. I mean, he's a good pitcher, but he's not a great pitcher. All of a sudden, a good pitcher looks great. You can blame it on adrenaline. One of those nights, he just has all of his good stuff with him. Or there's something up. And uh, Buck Showalter and the Mets believed there was something up. Now, once again, this is weird. His ears did appear shiny. I mean, they, they really and truly did. Um, but the test came back negative, as we like to say. Um, but but the data, I don't know, the data gurus of Major League Baseball um, did a kind of a research and said Musgraves, uh, Musgrove's spin rate was not only higher than Major League Baseball on average, and that was standard reason. He's a power pitcher, so he's going to have more spin on his ball. But it was much higher than he had been averaging throughout the balance of the year. You want to jump in here, Frio? Well, yeah. Have you ever heard of uh, John Boy? John Boy Media does all those uh, yeah. baseball yeah. videos. Yeah. He put one out, I think, yesterday or two days ago of exactly what you're talking about. So if you haven't checked that out, it's it's hilarious. And I agree. There's something weird going on Well, there. it's John Boy, J-O-M-B-O-Y, yeah. right? John Boy, yeah. um, and he, I mean, it's colorful. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. say that. I mean, there, there's some, um, there's some language in there. Uh, he interprets what the coach and manager may or may not have played. So I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But uh, it was a deciding game, in a playoff series between the Mets and Padres, and um, and a guy looked better than he ever has. Now, is that the first time ever? No, of course not. I mean, there have been games that pitchers just look like wow. I mean, they've got their stuff today. But um, the shiny ears, Buck Showalter thought were a dead giveaway. And um, somebody apparently thought there was something to see here because, once again, they went through the four-seam fastball, cutter, curveball, sinker, slider, changeup, and his spin rate, as we like to say, was off the charts. So, I mean, maybe it was adrenaline. Maybe he just had one of those nights. Um, we hope that um, – who's, who's pitching for the Braves today? I think uh, Ranger Suarez is pitching for the, uh, the Phillies, and he's giving them trouble. I mean, Suarez has – I mean, he has lots out stuff when he's on. Um, here's what I think happens today. I think the Braves' experience will begin to really play, uh, uh, pay big dividends. I mean, having been there, having done that, not getting rattled in the moment, not getting caught up in the moment, I think Freehold will agree with this. I mean, there, there's a lot of value to that. I mean, the Braves have done this several years. I mean, come, come from, I don't know, beat the Dodgers last year to get to the World Series, beat the Astros in the World Series. You gain a lot of confidence there. I mean, they got 10 and a half games down to the Mets, didn't panic, just kind of continued grinding, playing the game. Uh, played 700 baseball since uh, June the 1st. So I would give the upper hand to the Braves, and I think most of the experts would give the upper hand to the Braves. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Phillies won. The, I mean, the Phillies played 600 baseball. I mean, they've been a good baseball team in the wrong division. 
I mean, when you get two teams, it's a little bit like, remember the uh, the back-to-back year Seattle Slough and Secretariat? Let me get this first. Secretariat and Seattle Slough won the Triple Crown. I mean, we went forever without anybody winning it. And then two horses won it back-to-back consecutively. And then we went a long time after that. It's a little bit like the Mets and Braves were Secretariat and Seattle Slough. You know, and the, uh, and the Phillies were called in the wrong division. Um, you just, it's hard to keep up with two teams when both win 102 baseball games. I mean, that's just called a bad day at the office. But um, I think the Braves will win the series. I think it's a highly competitive series. And I would not be surprised much at all if the Phillies figured out a way uh, to advance. And I would imagine play the Dodgers. You know, the Dodgers are prohibitive favorites over the um, the uh, Padres, and that would stand to reason. The, the Braves are favored over the Phillies, but not substantially because people understand the finicky, temperamental nature of baseball. So we got that done, right? That sports report brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods. One other quick update. Um, we hoped and prayed, we being Gamecock Nation, we hoped and prayed for a positive game Saturday. We got that. We hoped and prayed for a win. We got that. We hoped and prayed that um, the week off would allow some players to get healed up and rejuvenated and, you know, ready to play the kind of the second home stretch of the season. And then people like me hope and pray they play a 730 kick mm-hmm. because we like to get prepared. But there's a <laughs> there's a there's a um, a ritual. It's harder to prepare at 9 a.m. for you, a 12 o'clock You can't o'clock prepare kickoff. at noon. I mean, yeah. you can't get adequately prepared by noon. You just can't. Because you don't pre- prepare with pancakes. No, no, no. And I don't stretch. You know, if, if I'm a player, I stretch. I mean, it doesn't matter if I stretch at, at 10 in the morning, I do my calisthenics at 3 in the It doesn't matter. I mean, it, you know, but preparing as a fan, in particular as a Gamecock fan, recently has taken some um, some doings. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so we find out yesterday at about 12.15-ish that the Gamecocks uh, in Texas A&M are going to play a 7.30 night kick. Rev's excited. He gets to see these lights, you yeah. know, the red lights and the banners and all that Darn crap. Right. That, uh, freaks me out around the stadium. What is the world? How they see those lights and music and all the um, shenanigans? I think of our good friend Roger. I mean, he would be quite um, PO'd by what's going on <laughs> in williams Bryce at 7.30 at night with the red I think, lights. I think the, it just enhances the experience. And the it's banners and it's all fun. these other good things. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it'll be a um, – we hope it'll be a festive atmosphere in williams Bryce come um, – not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. This Saturday um, – I'm paying close attention to Clemson. I don't. I don't know why, um, but something tells me Florida State has circled this game for years and years and years and years. Florida State was the dominant team of the ACC. I mean, they were the they were the team everybody had to beat. And then in some, you know, I, I don't know. Over the years, Bobby Bowden gets older. He retires. He loses a lot of his staff. People don't remember this, but um, Chuck Amato at NC State was on the Bowden staff. Brad Scott, Mark Richt. I mean, they, they had continuity of staff and had really good assistant coaches, not only good game day coaches, but great recruiters. And Amato, Rick, Brad Scott, all of those guys left, and Bobby Bowden got old, and that program began to kind of decline, and they wandered around for a while. Clemson took advantage of that, became the, the premier program in the, uh, in the ACC. But nothing is forever. I mean, Florida State was not going to be the dominant team forever. They were for a long time. And um, I think they may have lost to Virginia at home on a Thursday night for the first ACC loss ever. But they'd been in the ACC three or four years, I think, before they ever lost a conference game. Um, Clemson is kind of in that position today. I mean, they're the, by far the dominant team in that league, clearly better than anybody else in that league. But Florida State is a team 
that if given the right circumstances can give Clemson a run. And um, and everybody looks for a signature win, you know, to get your program back on track. Remember, pivotal win, career-defining win, <laughs> you know, um, progressive win, mm-hmm. turnaround win, you know, all these category, uh, categories we create to try and put wins in. But um, something tells me, and, I, you know, I think Clemson wins, but I don't think they win going away. Florida State has some dudes, and I think they'll be ready for the Tigers when they come to Tallahassee um, this Saturday night. So um, as a Gamecock fan having an open week, I'm going to watch a lot of football, and that'll be – there's two games I'm really going to pay close attention to. One is um, Tennessee and Alabama because I want to know how good Tennessee is. I mean, we know Alabama's good, right? We know Georgia's good. We know Clemson is good. We don't know Tennessee's good yet. I mean, we don't know that. We think they are, but we don't know. Once again, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson have proven over the last several years how good they are and can be. Is Tennessee ready to join that crowd? Don't know. We'll find out that um, Saturday afternoon. And then Clemson plays at Tallahassee Saturday night. And as a Gamecock fan, you kind of keep one eye on that game because you want to see how you stack up. Now, I said it yesterday, and I'll say it again. Um as a Gamecock fan, realistically, you look at two teams on the schedule and say, we just don't have anything for them. I mean, we don't have anything for Georgia. We don't have anything for Clemson. I told Rev yesterday during the break, upsets are not uncommon. I mean, they just aren't. Upsets happen a lot in college football. Big upsets don't. I mean, when one team is favored by 21, 24, 28, we like to say, they were the, that's one of the biggest upsets ever. Yeah, but there aren't many of them. I mean, there just aren't. Oh, uh, you know, Kentucky's favored by 11 with the starting quarterback and six or so without the starting quarterback. That's not a big upset, even at 11. I mean, that's an upset, no doubt, but that's not a huge upset. When one team is favored three, four touchdowns, that's a big upset, and they don't happen very often. Um, so when you look at the, the, the Gamecock schedule and you see Clemson and Georgia, you, you got to admit that that's, that would be a big lift. And that one's already done. You know, when we know how that worked out. And Clemson is clearly much better than South Carolina talent for talent, player for player, roster for roster. Now, now once again, you go play the game, you never know. But you kind of do. <laughs> you kind of do. The A&M game is another game kind of like the Kentucky game. I text with a buddy, oh, Chris Clark, who comes on our show Friday morning, Gamecock Central. I said, A&M and Kentucky play on a neutral site, both teams healthy. Who's favored? And he said A&M by four, five. Um, but you're not on the road. You're at home. So there's a little bit of counterbalance there. I would argue, Rev, that A&M will be favored by four, maybe five, because they've got a better roster. But it's in Williams-Brice. It's at night, and crazy things happen. Not the 21-28 point crazy thing, but the four or five point. And if the Gamecocks can back up what they did this past Saturday by upsetting A&M at home, uh then, then yeah, there, there's something happening there that is creating some enthusiasm and positivity and uh, and could lead to a, you know, uh, a better run than they've had. I, the fans I, will feel well, better. But I didn't say a Spurrier-like run. I said right. a better run than the last four or five years. A little hoptimism. Have been. Yeah, a little hoptimism. That's what teams like South Carolina and, you know, the majority of teams, Florida State and South Carolina would be similar in that. They need a little hoptimism. If the Gamecocks can figure out a way to beat Texas A&M, that kind of gets a little optimism brewing. If Florida State could figure out a way to upset Clemson, then that's one of the program. Here I am with the category. You ready? That's one of the um, defining wins <laughs> of the new version there you of go. Florida State football. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll be back, take some calls, talk some politics. Had a debate last night um, between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan in Ohio. The two best candidates on the ballot in America today. 
are both teal and Trump endorsed. One is in Arizona, one in Ohio, and third ain't close. Those two guys are so much better than anybody else on the ballot. It's astounding. And Mitch McConnell says thank you, but no thank you to Blake Masters and has been passively supportive of J.D. Vance. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. In the next hour, I want to really go into the Fed, some of the economic matters. Uh, Mohammed El Arien Arien was on CNBC yesterday. We'll play some of that with Becky Quick and and Joe Kernan. Very interesting take. I mean, he adds a third leg. I mean, it's not just about inflation. It's not just about interest rates. He talks about stability in the economy. Uh, Rest assured, when this guy says that, it raises red flags. People become concerned, and and Becky Quick actually, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but she says, hey, did you just say economic instability? Remember, some of the terminologies mean something. Uh, it's, it's kind of dog whistle for let's not freak people out, but there may be a lot more pain on the way than we ever imagined. Uh, the midterm elections, and I want to do this real quick, and then we'll get to the phones. Um, I saw yesterday where somebody's making the argument that the midterm elections provide an opportunity to find out whether or not the Biden family is a, a diplomatic business uh, arranged, you know, uh, shakedown machine. I mean, in essence, it, it is all about inflation. It's all about the economy. It's all about, you know, these other mat crime. I've got some statistics here from a Monmouth poll, but, but there, there's an argument to be made if you're a conservative Republican and you see Trump get investigated after investigation after investigation. This is a one-time opportunity for the American people to see and maybe hold accountable uh, the Biden family in their, shall we say, sketchy or diplomatic overseas business arrangements. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Kid, if the Republicans really wanted your boys elected, but out of me, guys like Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, to Scott, the rest of them, why aren't they jumping all over McConnell? Or why, why are they just letting it go? Do you see any Republicans fighting for your guys? Breeze, that's an interesting question. Why why do they let McConnell? I mean, there's a there's a race in, in Alaska. I'll let you finish, Breeze. There's a race in Alaska uh, between Republicans. Telly, um, excuse me, um, Telly, Kelly Shabaka and Lisa Murkowski and... And McConnell is spending Senate leadership fund. They're both Republicans. It's this ranked primary system. So you got two Republicans. You know a Republican's going to win. But McConnell is spending money tearing her apart. And I'm talking about um, Shabaka instead of going after, you know, the, the people in Arizona, uh, the Democrat in Arizona. In other words, he's taking some of the Senate leadership money and trying to decide which Republican. And he's choosing Murkowski, obviously, over um, Kelly Shabaka. Uh, without spending any money against astronaut Kelly on behalf of Blake Masters. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of questions I have about his motivation. That, well, I'm not saying his motivation. I'm saying the whole damn party. I mean, you know, I'm getting so, I'm getting so sick and tired of these pieces of crap. So McConnell's doing this thing, but who the hell's raised, who's raising cave with them about it? I mean, all of this stuff stinks. And the Republican Party stinks, too. And I'll tell you another thing about this recession. Yes. We've been in a recession probably since the second month of Biden's presidency. I mean, things started going downhill from there. We're already in a damn recession. I mean, we're already in economic instability. The only question is how much worse will it get? And I'll tell you another thing, too. I'm wondering what's going to happen. I saw that. I believe I saw where some Democrat politician, his 17-year-old daughter, suddenly died from an um, 
from a heart or how harder it is some sort. What is going to happen? What are these Democrats going to do? And a lot of Republicans that they go had their, I mean these are these advocates that had their kids vaccinated three and four times. <clears throat> I know seventeen year old kids that have had four shots already. Okay, what are they going to do when they start dying? And isn't it ironic? It's just the men too that seem to be having it. So well, the majority of the guys are having the heart issues, which makes them, of course, too weak to fight. And they're saying, what are they going to do when it starts happening to their children? And the next question is, how much of these um, are these Democrat dogs like our professors? Will, of course, they get paid regardless, but they still they, they still are going to have to feel some of it. What are they going to do But these economic, who are they going to blame? What are they going to do? You know, all of this stuff, and again, what are the Republicans going to do? Man, we are so, we are so, we got such a bunch of crappy political leaders out there, it's not even funny. And, you know, and the more I, and I'm almost certain we're the ones that that going to sabotage the pipeline. Man, we're no better than the damn Russians or the Ukrainians. And they, the Ukrainian politicians are just as damn bad. All of these politicians, everything that is wrong with this world goes back to godlessness, and daggone politicians, and they all go hand in hand, and, you know. And 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 I I just I, I can't think of any of them. That I, I mean, they just they wonder why we don't respect them, and it's just amazing to me that they wonder that. Thank you, Breeze. One politician, and I guess the Florida Surgeon General would be categorized as a politician or classified as a politician. I mean, a guy named General. He's the he's the Florida Surgeon General, uh, Joseph Ladapo. He's a medical doctor. He's recommended. I mean, I don't know if I've seen anybody say, hey, I believed in it, now I don't. And I think, I mean, he was one of the early advocates for the mRNA vaccine, some of the boosters. Now he says that there's far more evidence, um, and the consensus should be that 18 to 39-year-old men should not be vaccinated. I mean, he is clearly saying now that I was wrong. I believed that 18 to 39-year-old men we're not putting themselves at greater risk by getting vaccinated than they were the risk of uh, contracting COVID. Now he follows some of the Scandinavian nations. We, um, I say, we know. We, we uh, we've read what happened in Denmark, Norway, Sweden. All agree that there are pretty serious health concerns in giving existing COVID vaccine to some of the younger people, males in particular. Um, Denmark and Norway. We said it yesterday. I'll say it again. Denmark and Norway have banned. COVID vaccines for non-seniors, and last month, Sweden stopped recommending vaccines for 12 to 27-year-old males. I have no idea why it seems to adversely affect the male more than the the female. Australia has limited the vaccine to only those, um, excuse me, limited vaccines for those ages 16 to 35. Um, Only those with complex, chronic, or severe medical conditions can now get jabbed in, uh, in Australia, and um, and there's a lot of them. There's a London-based cardiologist that has now published two articles. They've been peer-reviewed. It's in the Journal of Insulin Resistance, and he basically, I mean, he's warning some of the medical journals that vaccines may do more harm in um, more harm than good in some non-elderly male population groups. Now, originally, he was one of the first to take the two doses of the vaccine. He was a big supporter and advocate of the science behind the vaccine. Now he writes, and here's his words, not mine. I'll do the best I can to not goof this up. You ready? Pharma covigilant systems and real world safety data compiled with, excuse me, coupled with plausible mechanisms 
of harm are deeply concerning, especially in relation to cardiovascular safety. He also cites a significant rise in cardiac arrest calls to ambulances in England and Ireland in 2021. There have been an extra 14,000 compared with the number of 2020 calls. Um, some of the similar data has risen or basically become known in Israel, um, 16 to 39, even 16 to 49 age group males in particular saw a 25% increase in heart attacks or cardiac arrest associated with the Pfizer vaccine, but not linked in any way, shape, or form to COVID-19. The president of the International Society of Vascular Surgeons says that the, um, I don't know what I'm talking about, Asim Malhorda um, and Sharif Sultan, uh, Sharif Sultan is a medical doctor, president of the International Society of Vascular Surgeons, says that Dr. Malhorda's literature review and analysis is very much a cause for global concern. Um, Joe Bakchara, medical doctor of Stanford, um, he was a, I mean, he was an early believer in questioning of the science. In other words, man, we're, we're doing in a year what it took 10 years to do, and we act like we're sure about what we did as what we um did before, and I, I want to go back to some of the conversations I've had with with medical doctors, a couple in particular. I mean, I'm not saying you owe me an apology because you don't. I mean, I, and I'm a big boy. I've been wrong, and I've been right, and I've been a bit crossed up at times. But for those that in the medical profession, the community that were so sure that people like yours truly were, re, you know, reckless and careless and dangerous. I mean, that's even a word I heard. You know, these guys on the radio are dangerous and not encouraging people to go get vaccinated. No, we were a, a lot smarter than you ended up being. You were reckless and careless and, 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 you know, believing in the science before the science was provable. You were the one reckless and careless and dangerous when you were, you know, questioning whether or not we should question what Pfizer was telling us or what the CDC was selling us or what the WHO was trying to suggest we do. Um, you, you bought a bill of goods. And I think it's time you realize that you were far more dangerous than we were in arguing whether or not someone someone should go get vaccinated. The, I don't say a lot of smart things on the radio. One of the smartest things I think I've ever said over the airwaves was when someone texted or called, may have done it publicly, might have been privately, but said, you got to stop that. You're being careless and reckless and dangerous by not encouraging your listeners to go get vaccinated. I said, I will never, never suggest to anybody a medical opinion. I'm not qualified. I'm highly skeptical of the government. Anything the WHO said or the CDC said or Pfizer in conjunction, uh, enabled by the government said, I am always going to be skeptical, unbelievably skeptical of what their motivation is. But I, the one smart thing I said during that entire ordeal, I'm not telling you to go get vaccinated. I'm not telling you not to go get vaccinated. Can consult with your physician, consult with your health care provider. But here's what happened. I think we're finding out now. The healthcare profession was corrupted, at least contaminated by the political process and um, and the extreme motivation some of the um, agencies within had to go tell you to get vaccinated. We find out now that young men, 18 to at least 39, have taken a bigger health risk by going to get vaccinated than they would had had they not. I mean, that, that's pretty empirical now. I mean, there's a lot of peer-reviewed information out there now, and the Florida Surgeon General is reacting on, on a accord to that, and he's basically saying, you know, I was wrong. I mean, I bought into the narrative. I bought into the belief that, you know, the consensus. And now he says there's evidence. We've got a lot of evidence now. 
And the evidence is empirical. The evidence is clear. The evidence says that if you're 18 to 39 and you're a male and you've been vaccinated, you're more at risk than an 18 to 39-year-old male who has not been vaccinated. We're kind of sure of the 12 to 49. We're just not as sure about the 12 to 49 as we are the 18 to 39. There's an argument to be made about the 12 to 49 and and the risk they take by being vaccinated or not. There's no argument if you're 18 to 39. If you're 18 to 39 and a male and healthy and you've been vaccinated, you have a greater chance to have some sort of cardiac event than if you had not become um, vaccinated. And, you know, the government said, and you trusted the government. I mean, the government said nothing to see here. The, the, you know, the science is indisputable. We know what we're doing. We, we got the blessing of the CDC and the WHO and the I, you know, the International, what, not, what's, what's five, NIH, National Institute of Health. I mean, we know what we're doing, and we're strongly encouraging and suggesting everybody go get vaccinated. In fact, if you want to stay in the Army, you better go get vaccinated. If you want to keep your job, you better go get vaccinated. We should all be ashamed that we allowed that to be a narrative and there was no counter-narrative allowed to exist because we were fringe and we were deniers and we were radicals and reckless and, and careless. And now the evidence shows, no, the, the, the only opinion, the only opinion that seemed to be a sound opinion were those saying, be careful with the science. We're trying to do things in a year that normally take 10 years. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning. How about them Gamecocks? You know, I can talk X's and O's. I understand football, played football in high school and all that stuff. But sometimes I'm just kind of a fan. And uh, them red lights, when I heard we was getting them, I thought, whoops, until I was there. And that that, that really – does enhance the, the, the atmosphere and uh dave you ain't seen them yet right no i have seen them i love them oh oh you've been to the stadium like live when they when they, when they had them sure oh okay. season I tickets yeah i love what you think of them uh god awful helmets they put on us to play south carolina state i didn't pay attention to them i was watching the lights <laughs> oh my god plain white helmets and just a big red c on it don't even look like our regular seat just god i hope they, they hope they lose them things they got awful ugly i know it shouldn't matter but oh god they were ugly but listen i want to talk about that vaccine thing uh out here on the farm where i work uh there's a guy out here that's a retired bodybuilder a little short fella but he's a retired bodybuilder um and uh he knows a lot of those guys personally and like he, he knows, like, Mark Coleman, legendary bodybuilder. He, you know, he trained with him, knew him personally and all that. And uh, he knows four bodybuilders that are about his age, which is probably mid mid to late 40s, four bodybuilders that he knows personally that took the vaccine, dropped dead within a couple of months. And uh, now, he, now he readily admits it could have a connection to the steroids and the, in, you know, uh, enlarged heart that they may have already had and things like that. But still, that that's... That's a pretty big number. Four, pe- four people that are your colleagues in what you do dropping dead in their 40s within months. And nobody, he said nobody wants to investigate, and they, they get threatened. It's like, well, we can investigate, but we're going to investigate your steroid use, your HGH, or whatever they call all of this thing. And, and so this kind of intimidates the family to just keep their mouth shut. But um, 
but yeah, that this the the recklessness. You're right, Ken. We weren't the ones that were reckless. It, it was it was then that was reckless, and that, that's just it's scary. And I'm still waiting for Breeze's book to come out and uh, called On Purpose by Breeze. I'll buy the first copy. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. You know, because when you go back, I mean, there, there's a lot of arguments to be made. There's a lot of debates to be had about whether or not the vaccine should have been optional, should have been mandated, um, to what age group, um, how durable, how effective. I mean, there are a lot of fair debates to have. I mean, to me, it was never a debate about young people. There's no data out there that shows somebody under the age of 30 was high risk. I mean, there, there is no data at all, unless you had some sort of pre-existing condition. I mean, if your immune system had been compromised, if you had some sort of heart ailment, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, um, there's a subset within that larger set that probably needed to be vaccinated. And I'm not here saying the vaccine didn't work. I mean, I would imagine the vaccine saved lives. I would imagine the vaccine worked to some degree on some, you know, populations of people. But there was never a reason to mandate vaccination for people under the age of 40. There just was not. It should have been optional. It should have always been optional. But we had the military requiring. We had private sector employees requiring 25-year-old perfectly healthy men go get vaccinated or you're going to get kicked out of the military or you can't stay on the job. And the absurdity of that, that's reckless. That's careless. That's dangerous. But it's not my concern about the – I mean, if you're running a truck body manufacturing plant in Pamplico, South Carolina, and the government says that this vaccine – I mean, you've got a call to make. If you're a health care provider, if you're a doctor, you, you owe the public a better decision. You do. I mean, the, the guy running a truck body manufacturing plant or a sod farm in Orangeburg or some sort of, um, you know, a junkyard in Timmonsville, I mean, that guy doesn't know any better. I mean, you can't go to him and say, hey, what do you think a good decision or not is? But it was very clear to me that the political orbit had insisted required, and I don't know what the favor is. I don't know what the um, the deal they made one with another. I have no idea what sort of deal Pfizer made with the healthcare community or the healthcare community made with the political body. I mean, I'll never know that. But I can speculate, and they were trying mighty hard to convince everybody to go get vaccinated when the science clearly showed, even early on, that you know younger, healthier people were simply not at risk. They never were at risk. They never are at risk by and large, on pandemics or any other sort of um, of something or other that requires a vaccination. So, yeah, I mean, the, the careless, reckless, dangerous people in this were, were those who had a degree of understanding and sophistication about this and still required or insisted or made known their public opinion in, in you know, in support of vaccinating kids. It, it's bizarre to me how we let the, the, the health, I mean, we need to trust our doctors. We need to trust our nurses. We need to trust the NIH. We need to trust the CDC. And they're not to be trusted. I'm sorry. They're just not to be trusted. And I can't, I mean, I'm not going to call anybody by name, but I had several local representatives from healthcare, you know, basically chastise me for not encouraging people. Ken, you've got an audience. You talk to your audience every day. That There's a camaraderie you guys have. There's a trust you guys have with one another. You need to get on that radio and tell these people to go get vaccinated. And I said, you're crazy. There is no way I would ever, without a medical degree, or, you know, I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist or a medical I'm not getting on the radio telling people to go and put experimental drugs into their body. That's what it is. I mean, it's experimental drugs. I would never do that. 
Um, Especially when you learn from Rand Paul that people like Dr. Fauci may have received commissions and kickbacks from the drug manufacturers. Well, I mean, we don't know how much. There's no telling how much money changed hands between the medical community, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson in the political world. There you you and I will never know how much money was involved in coercing the American public into believing the only viable decision, the only righteous decision you can make is to go get vaccinated. And it ended up as the as the evidence begins to kind of clarify itself, it's obvious now that the, you know, the Florida Surgeon General is basically saying, I was a believer. I was wrong. I mean, the evidence is clear now. We should have never vaccinated or never forced vaccinated anybody under the age of 40. Let's go to the phone. TK in the PD. Good morning, TK. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, this vaccine is taking off a, a whole new level. I didn't call about that. I'll get that in a moment. But since it's been brought up, uh, Ken, you won't call any names, but I will. I sent Lindsey Graham an email during the peak of this thing when Biden was trying to make me lose my job for not getting the vaccine. I asked him a very simple question. What are you doing to fight the vaccine mandate? He sent me an essay on why I need to get vaccinated. Uh, when we get a little bit closer to the time that he's going to be running, I'll make sure I get you that email. Um, I, that's the hill that I decided to die on is the vaccine. Uh, but why I really called you guys this morning was that this may seem, most of you listeners might not care on the surface, but. Uh, you got about 25 seconds, TK. I'll make it quick. There's an important town council uh, vote in Latta, in Latta today. If you can hear me in Latta, guys, you need to get up and go vote. Don't just go. Take your neighbors. Take everybody you can. It's very important. Uh, they've got national funding supporting the other side. Thank you for my call. Thank you, you, TK. Guys. Sorry to cut you off, but we got a hard break, top of the hour. Got to pay some bills, and we do it when they say do it <laughs> at the top of the hour. Back in a minute. You know, it really and truly boils down. I mean, it's not this simple, but I think there are two different factions in America today. There are those who still, for whatever reason, uh, maybe you're not as trusting as you've always been, but you still genuinely trust the government to shoot you straight. I mean, you've been conditioned to believe that if the FBI says somebody did it, they probably did. If the CIA says they're owned to something, they probably are. If the government in totality says, you know, this is the best way to go, you probably to some of you, there's a little bit of skepticism we all have about authority, but there's something in our genetic makeup, I believe, in our DNA. Um, some are just more trusting. It's pretty interesting to not trust. When you don't trust those you've been conditioned to trust, you start having to make out, make decisions on your own. And I, I'm convinced, I mean, I've never done a psychological survey because I don't know how to do that anyway. And a lot of this is psychobabble. But I believe there's something inside all of us that, that kind of, when, when that fork in the road presents itself, there's something in our genetic makeup and our DNA that kind of forces us down one way or the other. Now, we can fight it. We can resist. We can refuse. We can say, I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. But, but when we get to that fork in the road, and let's say to the right, it's, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical than most. I mean, I just don't quite believe what Fauci is telling me. I don't trust Pfizer to shoot me straight. Um, it, it's easy for us to go that way. It's hard for someone who has something inside of them that wants to be trusting of authority. And the government would, would be kind of an authoritative entity. Now, once again, I don't, I don't know what the psychoanalysis of this is, and I don't know what the genetic makeup of those, you know, is it more of this chromosome or more of that? I don't have any idea um, why that's the case, but I think we're all wired fundamentally different to some degree. I mean, despite our being human beings and a member of the same, you know, uh, 
earthly population. And when we come to that fork in the road, I think the easy thing to do is to say, well, I mean, the, the NIH isn't going to lie to me about that. I mean, the healthcare community is not going to lie to me about that. The government, I mean, yeah, they'll take advantage of me on some other sorts of things. But surely when it comes to a vaccine and my health and safety, they're not going to mislead me. And there are those who say, of course they will. Absolutely they will. And I think that is the central argument in American politics today. I think those who believe, and I think it's largely, I mean, I don't say all about Democrat and Republican, but it's a lot of that. I think if you are um, in, in, at your heart a true believing Democrat, there's something about your makeup that you give the government benefit of the doubt. You're a little more sympathetic. I mean, I get a lot of Democrat friends of mine say, Ken, I get it, man. They got it wrong, but it was hard. I mean, it was hard to get that right. Well, then tell me it's hard. I mean, when it comes to the vaccine, and I'm at the fork of the road, just tell me. We don't know. I mean, we're making a lot of educated guesses here. A lot of people here. were very sure of themselves. Yeah, but it, they, they, were... They, they were emphatically sure of themselves, Rev. I mean, how can you question the science? And and that's, I mean, I, I really believe. I mean, we've got conservatives and liberals. We've got J.D. Vance and, and um, you know, in Ohio. we got Blake Masters in Arizona. I mean, I want these guys to win. But I think at the end of the day, you voting for a J.D. Vance or a Blake Masters or a Herschel Walker is going to be, it's that fork in the road. You know, you, you, you find Masters quirky. You find Vance a little bit um, insincere. You find Walker a little bit um, inept at understanding some of the issues. But you just don't trust government to the point of, I'm going to give these guys a try. You know, maybe we could have done better than Vance at Ohio. Maybe we could have done better than uh, Masters in, in Arizona. Maybe we could have done better than, than Walker and Oz in Georgia and Pennsylvania. But I want somebody to go there and represent my bias. And my bias is, I just don't trust government. I mean, I just don't trust. I, I go back to the story I said yesterday, Reb. You know, I would be bothered if Facebook had gone to the FBI and said, hey, we've got this information making it making its way onto our social media platform, and we want you to be aware of it. It's this Hunter Biden laptop story. I mean, this could have an effect or impact on the 2020 presidential election, and we don't buy into it. I mean, we don't. We're a little bit sympathetic to Biden. We don't like Trump. We don't like the Trump, you know, the MAGA movement, the Make America Great Again movement, the America First movement. And out of kind of a deference to that, we're going to suppress this story, but we don't want to get in trouble with you. I mean, we want to make sure we're not getting crossed up with the FBI. I mean, if, if that happened, that would bother me a lot. I think it's unpatriotic. I think it's anti-American. I don't think it's um, allowing free speech. I think it's a, um, an assault of the First Amendment. But, but those guys, the Silicon Valley guys, are by and large liberals. They would not want Trump. They would not want Make America Great Again to be the prominent or predominant governing theory. So, so you know, but, but the, what's alarming to me is what we spoke on yesterday. That's not the way it went down. Zuckerberg said the FBI came to him and said, hey, there's going to be this information that is going to make its way onto your social media platform, of which you've got billions of users, hundreds of millions in America, at least uh, you know, 100 million in America, and we need you to suppress this story. I mean, we need your algorithms to be altered so you know that story doesn't get viewed so much. Twitter actually said, and we're going to deplatform anybody that puts this story over the over our social media site. Once again, it would be a, it would be concerning and bothersome if the if, if those companies had gone to the FBI, but that's not the way it happened. The FBI went to those companies in the and name that, of American government. That's your government. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's your government. The government went to these companies and said, "Hey, 
We need you to alter your algorithms so this story gets suppressed. And what other conclusion can you draw there as, is to no why, other as, conclusion. as to why they did it? To, to, to make sure Biden got a better treatment or better shake than Trump. To, 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 to basically Biden. affect the outcome of the election. Right. I mean, the, the FBI affected the outcome of the election. How un-American is that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, and it's, that's it's, our government. Rev, it's not just un-American. It, it's scary. I mean, you don't want trouble with the FBI. I don't want any <laughs> trouble with the FBI. Who does want trouble with the FBI? Once again, this fork in the road. Do I trust the FBI or not? Do I trust the CIA or not? Do I trust the IRS or not? Do I trust my government or not? And I think at every turn, they've proven to be untrustworthy. Once again, the FBI went to Facebook and said, suppress the story. Who worked behind the scenes on behalf of Pfizer or the NIH or the CDC or the WHO? I mean, who knew that this was questionable science? You, I mean, if I know it, you know they knew it. I mean, somebody at Pfizer knew. Hey, man, we're rushing this thing along, but there's a lot of money to be made. Somebody go see Fauci, somebody go see WHO, somebody go see the chair of the medical services community, and let's make sure we're okay with them. But there had to be some planning and and kind of a consultation one with another before we went down that road. And now we're finding out things that we were skeptical about to begin with. Why are we mandating vaccines for perfectly healthy 18 and 19-year-olds? Why are we requiring men and women in the armed services to go get vaccinated if you want to stay a member of the armed services. I mean, we did that. We did that in the private sector. We did that in the government. We forced young, healthy people to go get vaccinated. Guess what we've done to those young, healthy people? We've given them an added risk of some sort of cardiac event. I mean, the, the, the evidence is empirical now. I mean, it's clear now. I mean, it, Dr. Lapot, Dr. Ladapo of the, the Surgeon General of Florida basically says, and, and look now, he was an early advocate for the mRNA vaccine and the boosters. And now he says, after reading the evidence, after studying some of the information we've gathered, it was a bad decision. I mean, it was a terrible decision to require 18 to 39-year-old men to go get vaccinated. And and now we're following suit with Denmark, with um, Switzerland, excuse me, with Sweden, with some of the other Scandinavian countries. I think um, Norway is another country that is now prohibiting prohibiting young, healthy people from becoming um, vaccinated, who's going to be held accountable? I mean, for the 18 to 39-year-old men who are now more at risk of a cardiac event than they were prior to getting this mandated vaccine, what if that person has a cardiac event and dies? Who's responsible for that? I mean, let's say a 25-year-old member of the Army would have never, I mean, he's as healthy as a bull. I mean, he can run five miles, he can lift 300 pounds, he can do everything required of him to do to be in special forces. But for him to stay there, for that perfectly healthy young man to stay in that current job as a member of the military, he had to do one thing. He had to go get a vaccination. He didn't want to get a vaccination. He had a lot of questions about whether or not he should. He's got a father or mother who, you know, kind of dabble in health care, might be a radio talk show host, and read a lot about these things. They said, son, I'd be careful with that vaccine. There are a lot of things we don't know. Dad, I don't have a choice. I mean, if I'm going to stay in special forces, I've got to go get a vaccine. I've got to go get vaccinated. And let's say tragically or terribly, that 25-year-old Navy SEAL who had to go get vaccinated to stay in that job has some sort of cardiac event and dies. Who's liable for that? Who's responsible for that? Who foots the bill? Who do you sue? Do you sue your federal government? Good luck with that. I mean, we opened Pandora's box by requiring people, young, healthy people, who were not in imminent threat nor danger, we required them. Why? 
Why did we do that? That's my question. Is it all about money? I mean, is, is it all about Pfizer profitability or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson? Or is it a controlling part of this? Is there something about the government now or people within the government that like to have control over the masses? Was this an experiment? I'll get real conspiracy theory. You ready? Was this to see how far they could go if they need to go even further? I mean, can we coerce without mandate 25-year-old healthy young men to go get vaccinated with a vaccine that didn't exist a year ago? I mean, if we can do that, what can't we do? You better believe I buy some of that. You're, you're, I mean, do I believe it was about the money with Pfizer and some of the uh, royalties and paybacks and kickbacks and deals nobody saw, to quote the great philosopher Glenn Fry and smugglers? Of course I do. Absolutely I do. But now we're having to kind of face the truth. And the truth says there's never been a reason for young, healthy men in particular to go get a vaccination. Here's kind of unusual. Here's the fork in the road. You ready? I mean, if you're if you're me, I'll say this. There's not a member of my family who's been vaccinated. There's not a member of my family who hasn't had COVID. There's not a member of my family who's had it twice. I mean, I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if that's the way it rolls, but I'm one that leads my family in a direction of questioning government. I mean, my, my kids probably have it in their DNA now. Uh, if the government says something, they're like, I don't know. But, but what, what about the parent who is sympathetic to government? What about the liberal Democrat who says, son, the government's not here to hurt you. I mean, the government would never tell you to do anything to hurt yourself. The government would never tell you uh, to put yourself in imminent danger or harm. Go get the vaccination. I know you're 25 and you're healthy, but you need to do what you're told. Go get that vaccination because you'll even be more safe by taking that. And now the evidence clearly shows that's not true. How does that parent feel that trusted the government? to encourage their 25-year-old healthy son to go get vaccinated, and now you're responsible for that 25-year-old son of yours. He's more likely now than he was prior to the vaccine of having some cardiac event. How do you as a parent feel? I mean, you thought you were doing the right thing, but the mistake you made was trusting your government. The mistake you made was believing Pfizer was doing you know, this for all the right reasons. And the CDC was doing this for all the right reasons. And the NIH was doing this for all. I don't know the reasons they were doing it, but the evidence is clear now. They weren't doing it for all the right reasons. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. You know, you're asking about, you know, is it is it genetic? Is it a chromosome? You know, you know the, the truth of the matter is, and, and This has been going on since really World War II, and it started in in Nazi Germany. Um, They realized how effective Madison Avenue was at controlling people's behavior, and they copied it. And then Madison Avenue saw how good they were at affecting people's behavior, and they copied it. And we have been figuring out, we've been dialing in people's personas for about probably 100 years now. And we've gotten it pretty, pretty darn good. And, and the truth of the matter was, they figured out what made people tick. And by they, I mean really anybody. You and I have, if we really wanted to slow down a minute and manipulate people, we can go on the Internet we can figure out how to do it. All we got to do is figure out the basic personality types and what motivates them. And so they threw everything at us. They threw, your children will die. They threw at us. If you don't get the vaccine, you're going to cause other people to die. Meanwhile, they've been brainwashing us for years and years to say, "What you know, your health doesn't matter, your life doesn't matter, but everybody else's does." 
So we have to do everything for the collective. That's what we've been taught for 50 years, public health, public policy. Think of others. Think of others. And it's it's almost religious in a way because we say, well, the Bible says, you know, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. But they've gone a step further and said, do unto others way more, way better. As a matter of fact, throw the individual out of the equation. You don't matter. And then they say, now take this vaccine so that everybody else can live. And people out of a sense of almost like messianic sacrifice say, I'll do it. I'll take the risk for the betterment of the world. That's what they sold us on, because that is the one thing that that motivates human beings almost more than anything else other than selfishness. But is the human condition reversible, Larry? I mean, if, if we realize as a society... In general, and I'm talking about in kind of on the averages. If we if we believe at some point in time as a society we've been hoodwinked, we've been taken advantage of, we, we gave too much trust to folks who didn't deserve our trust, is it reversible? If we're willing to do the same things that they did, if we're willing to manipulate people, yes, societal pressure is probably the, the largest motivator of human uh, behavior other than like hunger and thirst. And, and, and everybody knows this. And we still sit here and we, I mean, I think that the most unregulated industry is probably advertising. The, the, what we allow over the airways, if we're going to let everything, we've got to let everything. But now we're seeing what happens when you only let one side through. And, and people are, are a victim of what they hear. I mean, we always have been. I mean, you are what you were taught as a child. I am what I was taught as a child. We're very malleable, and and that doesn't change in adulthood. We think it does, but it doesn't. And the messaging that society has allowed to go unchecked is what allows people to be pushed into these these states of panic, these states of fear. You know, we've talked about you know mass formation, psychosis, and all these other things. They're very real, and they're easy to to conjure up. And if you have the bully pulpit, you can do it. And it's just that we don't use those powers for good. We use them for whatever it is that the, the people in power are using them for these days. And I know that sounds really, really, you know, I don't know, paranoid. But look around you and just, I mean, don't you almost think people go under a spell sometimes? Sure I do. No question about well, it. How, you know, don't you know that people do that on purpose? It's not an accident. Yeah. So, you know, we just, society's going to have to challenge these notions instead of just sitting back and saying, well, what can I do? There needs to be an equal and opposite voice, and there just isn't one right now. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. And that goes back to the fork in the road. If you decide to be a contrarian and, and, and a little bit um, questioning of those in authority, the easy road is to look at the FBI and say, okay, I mean, you guys wouldn't lie to me, and, and Pfizer, okay, you guys are in the in the healthcare business. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't lead me astray. The hard thing to do is to try and go go the opposite direction. I mean, society, and I think Larry's right. I mean, society has been massively manipulated, right? I mean, there's been mass manipulation. Kind of an interesting point Larry made. You know, the most unregulated business is probably advertising. I mean, I actually made a little note. That's kind of an interesting quote. The most unregulated business is advertising. You know, you, you tell somebody, you take this pill, you feel like a million bucks. I'll give you an example. I'll pick on our industry here for a second. So when I leave here, it's on 95.3, and I hear Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck says, not Relief Factor will work. It will give you your life back. 
Who believes that? I mean, once again, I think it's a fair debate to believe whether relief factor works or not. I mean, I don't have any idea, but, but you know, relief factor not only works, I mean, that's not good enough. It gives you your life back. Who really believes that? I mean, there, there's got to be, there had to be some research done that there's got to be some emphasis put on that line. Relief factor will not only work, it will give you your life back. I'm willing to have a debate about whether relief factor works or not. It's this natural ingredient, it's doctor-inspired, and all these other good things. But I just don't buy for a second that it gives you your life back. Imagine the arrogance of an advertising team who said, put in there, this product will give you your life back. And then get Dr. Gorka to say it. But I mean, the consumer, Dr. Gorka here, <laughs> um, but, but something, imagine this, Rev, the consumer has responded to that. It wouldn't be in there. If the, if the consumer had not responded in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have been, I think there has been mass manipulation in a way that is staggering, and we never want to admit it. Why? Because we're kind of guilty by association. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to shift gears and go to um, kind of kind of an interesting topic and subject. Anytime I get a chance to speak to somebody who knows more about the climate and the weather and the sustainability of the you know the the economy relating to the damage it may or may not be doing uh, to the planet's atmosphere and climatic conditions. Um, expert on global sustainable energy independence. Uh, someone who's deeply concerned about global warming is with us, Robbie Wells. Robbie, good morning. How are you? Mike, I'm doing just fine, and it's wonderful to be uh, able to speak with you and all of your listeners. Good deal. So um, we talk a lot. I mean, we've taken an official stance on climate change. We don't know. I mean, that's exactly where we stand as non-experts. We don't know. We read a lot. We understand some of what we read, a lot we don't understand. But um, but according to the World Meteorolo Meteorological Organization, there's something called the triple dip La Nina. That's not an ice cream. I mean, that's actually <laughs> a weather phenomenon. Exactly what is that, Robbie? Well, the triple dip, this is the first time that this has happened uh, this century where actually the, uh, the water in the uh, Pacific Ocean gets cooler than normal, and it causes um, a lot of things uh, to get out of whack. Uh, here in the United States, on the northern part of of our continent, it gets very cold, and down south, it gets a little bit warmer. And it actually uh, propels some of these hurricanes over in the Gulf Coast, like you just saw with Ian. Now, uh, the experts will tell you, and and I do follow the experts because I have run for office, and I try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me. The experts will tell you that climate change does play a huge role in this. We all know here in the Carolinas about Hugo back in 1989, but if you look at some of the storms that we have now, they're way more intense, and it's it's due to global warming. Robbie, the, the planet's four and a half billion years old, give or take 50 million years. We've kept records on weather for roughly 200 years. Forgive me, but that forces me to be skeptical of what we do know about the cyclical natural changes, whether you believe in God in heaven or not. I mean, the planet is somewhere around four and a half billion years old, 200 years of record keeping. Why are some of the experts so sure that they know what the condition of the planet has been for those four and a half billion in relation to what it could or might be moving forward? Well, Mike, you, you, you bring up a good point. And if you're right, then all is well. But if you're wrong, then, you know, we're in for a world of hurt. One, one thing is for sure, okay? 
if, if you've got 100 doctors telling you or, or 99 out of 100 doctors telling you you need to stop smoking or, or you're going to die and, and you've got that one doctor you listen to that says, no, I'll keep smoking. Well, you keep smoking and you die. So, so I think that what we need to do here is definitely take a look and, and listen to the scientists and what they are telling us about global warming. Look, Mike, we only have one planet. There is no planet B we can move to. And we need to be real, real smart and responsible with the, with the world that we have right here. So, you know, I, I, I'm big about protecting our people uh, in all sorts of ways. That's why I'm in insurance with Family First Life. But it's also why I'm, I'm big on gun violence as well. But when it comes to the, to the environment, if we do not protect our home, we will not have a home. What is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth supposed to be? Well, it just depends. Uh, it, but, I mean, if we can't you know, establish it, that, how do we know where to go? Well, I, I agree with you. And, again, I'm not the expert. I just try to listen to the experts when it comes to that because I have run for office. But, uh, you know, I, I guess you would have to get with a scientist on that one, Mike. Yeah. Well, I, I've run for office before, and I've tried my best to understand. It's just, uh, Robbie, without being disrespectful – the, the, the certainty that some of these speak, people speak, and I've gone through where they get the funding from and how the research is paid for and, and some of the universities associated. I mean, I, it seems to me, and I want to be respectful, it seems to me that the last thing the, you know, the climate experts want is a fair-minded debate. They just simply shut down anybody that, that questions whether or not they know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 50, 60, 70, 1,000 years from now. And I think it's a disservice to everybody who inhabits this planet to not allow a serious conversation and debate about the, uh, the merits and demerits of whether or not man is significantly contributing to the changing climate of a planet that's been here four and a half billion years old. There's nothing I would like more than to have a very fair-minded and sophisticated debate about that. It just doesn't seem right now many people want a part of that. Well, and, and I agree with you, and I always uh, have believed that, that debate is the best thing so that you can get all sorts of opinions and ideas out there in front of the people, and you can actually seek the truth. You know, the, the good book says that, you know, the truth will set you free. We have to seek that truth, uh, whatever the truth may be. And the truth may hurt us or, 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 or may make us mad, but it will not hurt us because the truth is the truth. Well said. Robbie, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Anytime, Mike. Thank you very much. Yeah, he had Mike and I are confused one with another. Um, what, what are you laughing at? Well, well, I mean, I know why you chose him as a guest. I mean, it, I thought it, was, be interesting. it was one of our Fox guests and he obviously has, you know, a way he believes and certainly want to hear that. It was just icing on the cake that he called you Mike the whole interview, but he, that was just not obviously an honest mistake. Um, and, and didn't know, you know, who you are. He, he ran for office, you know, obviously you've, you've run for office, but, yeah. but yeah, he, he could not answer the question about the, uh, the, what is the, well, I mean, it's not that he can't answer. It's, it's, it's almost like the old crap moment, you know, like, oh crap. Yeah. I mean, this guy <laughs> on my team, you know, I mean, yeah. I got to really, I got to scramble now and figured out some, um, I kind of got to make it up as I got, look. Now, now he did have a sort of a, a Carolina, is he from around here? I, I think he may be. I don't know. I don't a, have any idea. Carolina sound to You're right. Accent. I mean, I, I like that. These folks like, I mean, they, they offer themselves up as guests. I mean, we get this sheet, two-sided. Mm -hmm. uh, Kato, I mean, excuse me, Kato. Uh, Freehold, he called Mike. <laughs> yeah, you know, no. Mike. And every, just call people about whatever you choose <laughs> whatever, to call them yeah. I'm Mike. He's Kato. Um, <laughs> so, um, so Robbie is an expert on global sustainable energy independence. 
and he's deeply concerned about global warming. I mean, that's how they introduced him, or that's his, um, that's his, I don't want to say resume, but that's how he's uh, to appear as a guest on Wake Up Carolina. So anytime I see someone who is deeply concerned about global warming, I want to have a conversation. I'm deeply concerned about global warming. I'm highly skeptical of those who are deeply concerned without having a sophisticated, complicated um, debate. And I and I still argue this point, Rev. And I mean, I, I could have gone on and on and on with Robbie, but I don't want to be disrespectful for a guy mm-hmm. who offered himself up to be a guest on our show. I mean, I could have said, Robbie, we had a hurricane, you know, a couple of weeks ago that the day before they told us it was hitting here and it ended up hitting there. They said this was going to happen and that happened. Is that the I mean, I understand the difference in climate and weather. I mean, I get that. I mean, there, there's a total difference in, you know, climate projections and what the weather is or might be. But it's still modeling. I mean, it's still the realities of modeling. I mean, the, the model showed that the hurricane was not going to go out into sea enough to re-strengthen as a hurricane, right? I mean, that's what the modeling yep. showed until the day of. And then the modeling changed. And the modeling said, okay, it's going a little further out in the Atlantic than we thought, and it may strengthen back into a hurricane. And then the modeling said it's going to hit somewhere between Charleston and Georgetown. And then the modeling said, well, it may be a little north of Georgetown. I mean, this is all in 72 hours and really 48 hours. Those are the same. You're right. I mean, that's the weather. That's not climate. That's the weather. But the people are suggesting that this is going to be the temperature of the planet Earth, and this is going to be the height of the oceans in 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years, they're using the same sort of modeling methodology. And I don't know how anyone could believe that. It's a little bit like the vaccine. It's a little bit like if somebody in a nice suit with a degree or pedigree from somewhere says the vaccine works, about half of you just believe it. I mean, you just simply kind of fall in line. Larry was talking about some of this, you know, genetic makeup. Um, I mean, I'm not one of those, but there are a lot of people who, if someone with a, you know, with an official title, uh, in other words, I want to introduce this person as the chairman, or he, excuse me, he's the director of NIH, Dr. Anthony Fauci went to Johns Hopkins. I mean, there, there's a lot of you out there who say, um, so his name's Dr. Anthony Fauci. He went to Johns Hopkins and he's the head of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Anything he tells me regarding my personal health and well-being. I'm going to put in the book. And that's what got us where we are today. So when you hear someone as a, um, you know, a climate expert or a, uh, you know, some sort of, um, well, I, I don't say climatologist, but a meteorologist with a subspecialty in, in climate change from Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford or Duke, and they wrote a book, mm, they wrote a book, and they say the climate was going to be 2.1 degrees warmer in 300 years, some of you, that's good enough. You just kind of move on to the next, check in that box, move on to the next. And I just think America has to be more serious than that. When it comes to the vaccine, we weren't allowed to have a debate. Why? Because the crowd in charge said the vaccine works, right? The media, academia, the political class, the elites, the establishment, all those folks kind of rallied around the vaccine works. Why did they rally around the vaccine works? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But anybody that didn't believe that weren't allowed to participate in a much-needed conversation. Same thing with climate change. I think the only legitimate point that Robbie makes is we don't get planet B. I mean, this is the only shot we've got to get it right. And I don't know anybody in my world. I'm highly skeptical of climate change. I'm extremely, I'll, I'll even say this. I think climate change 
in its current construct, and I'm talking about the Al Gore, John Kerry version of climate change, the United Nations being kind of the leading voice of climate change, I don't think it's highly skeptical. I think it's a farce. I think it's a scam. I think, you know, the, the, the notion... Do you call it the for-profit side well, of I mean, it, climate it, change? It, it, yeah, it's for-profit and for-fear, for-control. You know, um, how do you control an economy? Well, I mean, if you tell producers of energy or consumers, you know, that, that if you do this, you're damaging the planet beyond repair, consumers have a conscience. Businesses have a conscience. They will adjust accordingly. But, but no, I mean, I think there's a very fair debate to be had about man's contribution to climate change. I mean, we're emitting more CO2 than ever. Is that fundamentally reshaping the Earth's climate? I don't know. That's a fair debate. If you want to have a, um, a sit-down, I don't need to be there. I mean, I can report on it, but I don't need to be in that room when we have the debate about, you know, how much effect or impact man is having on the Earth's climate and how much that could um, affect in 100, 200, 300 years. I think there needs to be a debate about that. Once again, I don't need to be in the room. I don't have anything to offer to that. But, but I know this. John Kerry and, and Al Gore don't need to be in that room either. But they're political prostitutes. That's all they are. That's all they've ever been. That's all they ever will be. They're trying to figure out a way to make a buck. Somebody's paying them to be a true believer. Gore doesn't believe in anything. Kerry doesn't believe in anything except what they're paid to believe. So if Kerry and Gore can make a buck in the name of climate change, that's exactly what they're going to do. I am all for a room full of serious scientists sitting down and debating, disagreeing, arguing about whether or not we can do better in projecting the climate of the earth 100 years from now and what man can do to protect it from itself in regards to the next 100 years. But that's not what we're having. We're having a very censored and one-sided debate. If you don't believe in what some of these academic universities have articulated, then you're a denier, and you shouldn't be allowed. You're dangerous. I mean, you won't accept the facts as they are. Let me tell you what. There are about one or two facts in climate change. The most important fact is nobody knows. I mean, that's the only fact that matters. And did you hear Robbie? I mean, once again, Robbie is, his words, not mine, deeply concerned about global warming. When I said, Robbie, what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? That was a pause because nobody knows. And if we can't get that right, what is the perfect height of the Atlantic Ocean? The perfect height of the Pacific Ocean? What, what, is, the, what is the exact amount of rainfall the world needs to sustain itself? What is the optimal amount of rainfall? N- nobody knows that. I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me to believe that we, we could even start a debate without at least giving a range. So that should the optimal temperature of the planet Earth be between here and here? Should the average rainfall in the world be between here and here? But, but we're starting, it's a political debate. It's for profit is what it's for. Let's, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back and go to the phone. I know somebody held on, but I had a, um, I had a rant rambling <laughs> around a follow-up in my head. Yeah, I mean, it, it's bizarre to me how many people just kind of take it hook, line, and sinker. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I was looking forward to that interview uh, since the beginning of the show, ever since I saw uh, that Robbie was scheduled to call in. He was one of the experts offered up by Fox as an expert, and we knew that he probably had a, a different opinion about 
climate change. Well, he said he's deeply concerned about climate yes. change. Okay. So I just thought it was going to be entertaining, and it lived up to its billing. Well, I mean, what did I do disrespectful? You, did, you were not disrespectful at all. Here's the deal. <laughs> now, now he may have considered it disrespectful when you asked him what is the optimal temperature of the planet. I don't think he was ready well, for I mean, that question. But, but he didn't get an answer. I mean, you, you, right. these folks are so prepared to give you the speech and their talking points. I mean, they've got point A, point B, point C, point D. But as the great philosopher Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And all of a sudden, you throw a question out there that nobody expected. And here's the, here's why. I mean, this goes back to the analogy I use about, you know, the Gamecocks playing every game in Death Valley, the Yankees playing every game in Fenway Park, uh, the Phillies playing every game at Truist Park tonight, this afternoon. <laughs> um, but but you, you got to be, if, if you see the world as I do, and you agree to participate in public discourse, you're going to be challenged at every turn, and iron sharpens iron. You better have answers. You better have an understanding of the issue and subject you're discussing. If you're a believer in climate change, nobody ever challenges. If you're a believer in vaccination mandates, nobody ever challenges. And that's why I think the the argument, if it's forced to be had, it's always to our advantage. I mean, Robbie's probably a good dude. And Rob, sure. Robbie probably is an expert on global sustainable energy independence. And Robbie probably is deeply concerned about global warming. But he appeared to not be prepared to have a debate and answer questions about why it is he believes what he believes. I have a set of fundamental beliefs in my life. When I step into the political orbit, I know I'm going to get challenged at every turn, around every bend, at every corner, why I believe what I believe. And I better damn well be ready to explain myself and capable of explaining myself. And I am. And those folks who believe in the vaccine mandate, who believe in climate change, everybody kind of loves on you and, and, you know, kind of props you up and tells you how great you are. And before you know it, you're incapable of defending what it is you believe in. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Thanks for holding on, Mike. Oh, I tell you, uh, Mike, is it Mike or Ken? (laughs) That was funny, too. I don't know. I never heard of this Mike art. I thought I I was listening to Ken, but (laughs) I I felt there that for a while that we are the Borg and we have been assimilated until you came up with that thing, what's optimal temperature? And all of a sudden, his freight train took a dirt road. I I think you... uh, you you hit it on the nose, and uh, if there were a Nobel Prize in common sense, I think you'd be a definite contender, uh, Ken. Uh, but there's no Nobel Prize in common sense. Uh, there's a bunch of Nobel Prizes, but that's not one of them. I think it should be. But um, they these these people want to keep everybody scared to death. They want everybody to live in fear of this, that, and the other, as if we hadn't got enough real problems, like, for example, a hurricane just came through here, uh, which is a bad thing, but it's a good thing, because if we didn't have those tropical depressions and hurricanes coming through, we're on the same latitude as the Sahara Desert. We would be a desert. So um, you got mixed blessings coming our way, but a lot of these people want to make people as miserable as possible and try to generate unrest and pain and misery. And that and that's uh, it's sad, but some people will do that for money or power or just because they're mean. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. You, you know, I mean, once again, I think there is a very warranted conversation about climate change 
that is always needing to take place. I mean, we always need to think about renewable energy. We always need to think about our stewardship of the planet. We always need to think about the impact or effect we're having on streams and rivers and drinking water and the climate and all these other sorts of things. I am very much in favor of that debate. I'm not in favor of um, of just shutting down the opposition, so to speak. I'm not in favor of disallowing anybody who has a counter opinion to be allowed to be in the room and have this discussion and debate. And I get tired of people saying that there's a consensus amongst the scientists. There's a consensus amongst the scientists who receive government grants. I mean, you know, 93%, 96%, 98% of scientists who receive government grants in the name of solidifying the argument uh, for climate change. But there are a lot of scientists out there who don't buy into this. I only saw it or not, but pre um, uh, the hurricane hitting the coast of Florida, uh, Don Lemon tried to force a guy, one of these meteorologists, he almost tried to force him into blaming this hurricane on um, climate change. And the guy said, no, I, mean, I don't have time for that, man. I mean, you know, that's, I mean, he didn't say this, but he inferred, hey, you're the political operative. I'm not. I mean, I'm here to tell you what's happening, why the storm is here. This is not real unusual. It's a Category 4 hurricane. We have one of those about every several years on the coast of Florida. I mean, they follow unique paths and treks. And, Lemon and, argued yeah, with him. Lemon argued. I mean, Lemon's a tr- I mean, Lemon has been told that this is what he has to believe. You want this job at CNN? You better put a check in this box. If you can't put a check in this box, Don Lemon, you'll find something else to do because this is what we have kind of bought into. I don't know. Is believed is the right word. Back in a minute. Welcome back. It's Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock. That means we have a visit from academia. Why somebody from academia would <laughs> come on this show, I don't know. But apparently, Dr. Will Bolt is a glutton for he punishment. coming back for more. Because he keeps coming back because he gets to talk about something that he loves and is near and dear to his heart, and that is early American history. We're talking during the break about the period of which he um, really has dedicated uh, his career, and that is the early American era of American history. And Dr. Bolt, I would imagine... That is post-revolutionary war, pre-civil war. Is that a fair benchmark or, or I yeah, don't know, sure. I mean, parameters? Lots of academics would sort of quibble and pick like random years, but yeah, just a yeah, ballpark figure, post-revolution up to the civil war. But you said there, there are those who, he told me a second ago, he said there, there, there are some guys who have written books about a single day in the civil war. No, for you'd, sure. You'd rather know in generalities. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big picture type of guy. Okay, well, let, let's do this because you said you've, you've not studied a lot about the colonial days pre-America becoming a nation. Um, you've not studied a lot about post-Civil War. I mean, obviously you're a historian and you know it better than most. Um, we're, we're talking about the Ukrainian War. We're talking about the Civil War. Uh, we live in a post-World War II world. Um, what <laughs> military activities were defining during the period of time? We'll refer to the early American era. In other words, um, from the revolution, let's exclude the Revolutionary War. Okay. We kind of know that story. But, but post-revolutionary war prior to the civil war what were the the wars or military excursions that were prominent in america's i don't know uh becoming more and more influential around the world you have two major wars war of 1812 obviously and then you have the uh, mexican-american war which was fought from 1846 to 1848 Okay, the, the the War of eighteen twelve was fought when? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. We had this big dumb football player, but he was really big and really fast, really dumb. Um, and, and the coach asked him one day, said, "Hey, I don't call his name." He said, "Hey, when was the War of eighteen 1812? And my buddy said, 
1812. Y'all tried to trick me on that one. <laughs> Touche. I yeah. mean, a good job yeah. there, my man. Um, but but so the War of 1812 was in 1812 about what? Uh, this was essentially the, the British government had refused to recognize the political and economic independence of the United States of America. And Great Britain is at war with France. This is the height of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, the United States, we just want to remain neutral. We want to trade with both of these nations. Uh, the British are obviously an island nation. They are impressing every able-bodied male into the military, and they need men to serve on their ships. So they're stopping American ships on the high seas and impressing uh, American sailors to serve in the British Navy. And what happens is 1807, uh, the British will stop an American ship, the USS Chesapeake, in American waters. They fire on an American ship, kill several American sailors, and obviously nowadays, right, if if the flag was fired upon and if blood was shed, certainly, right, no matter what our political party was, we would demand a declaration of war. This is when Thomas Jefferson is president, and Jefferson had done everything he could uh, to dramatically lower the debt. Was Jefferson anti-military? He didn't, he didn't like a standing army for sure. This was Hamiltonian. This was dangerous. Jefferson's philosophy was you don't need an army. Each of the states have a militia. And so, again, why spend all of this money? And Jefferson had done everything in his power to gut the Navy. Uh, Jefferson thought that the Navy sort of fostered the aristocracy because back in England, the, the sons of the wealthy families had served in the British Navy. So Jefferson thought this sort of perpetuated a, a sort of class-based system in the United States. So Jefferson's philosophy was, well, he said, we can't compete with the British. Why even bother trying? So Jefferson said, we're going to create what he called a fleet of mosquito gunboats. <laughs> and he said, we're going to take a rowboat and put a cannon on it. So we're going to have this rowboat with a cannon on it go up against a 50-gun British frigate. So uh, I'm pretty sure who you'd know you'd bet on. But again, Jefferson's philosophy was, wh why bother? I mean, the British are so far ahead of us in, in the naval supremacy, it's not even worth trying to compete. But Jefferson didn't like borrowing money. And sure. any time we went on some sort of military excursion, it cost money. Had yeah, to borrow money. money. Had to, you know what I mean? Sure. Along with that came debt. And he was real. What, I mean, he, he was almost obsessed with the federal yes. debt. Is that a fair? No, when he woke up every day, he was probably thinking, for what can we do today uh, to lower the debt? Right? You know, we just, we're going to cut. Where can I cut the budget in the national government? I mean, Jefferson was obsessed with this, made drastic reductions, left the country with a surplus by the time it was. Didn't get to eliminate all the debt. He had that little unexpected Louisiana thing where he had to spend $15 million that he didn't want to, but it was too good of a deal to pass up. So America comes out how in the War of 1812? Well, the United States, of course, we lose a bunch of victor battles early on. Three invasions were made into Canada. All of them failed. Uh, the British then retaliated. They burned the great city of Buffalo, New York, to the ground like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Right? Which is your hometown. Exactly. You can't keep the great city of Buffalo down <laughs> uh, for too long. But I, the military was, we were we were unprepared. Again, each of the states had their Whose fault was that? Well, this was Jefferson and Madison's. This was their political philosophy. Each of the states had a militia. They would come out once a year to drill and train. It was just an excuse to get drunk. You know, the guys had come out. But Dr. Bolt, I'm interrupting you, but I want to get this. So when we win the Revolutionary War... Jefferson and Madison and Adams and Franklin, all those guys had to respect the military effort it took. Oh, sure. I mean, it just didn't happen. I mean, there were a lot of willing soldiers uh, dying on the battlefield, you know, being successful on the sure. battlefield. That didn't affect or impact the Jeffersonian way of thinking. In other words, the fruits of our, uh, what, what did the victor go? The spoils. So the spoils <laughs> were as a result of us winning a war. 
Jefferson still didn't buy into the um, the no, importance this, of a military. Jefferson, Republican form, Republican with a small R, right? What had happened to republics where you had a large military? You had a guy like Caesar take it over. Right? So Jane Jefferson was terrified uh, of a large military establishment. And then when Andrew Jackson begins to make his rise in politics, this scares the you-know-what out of Thomas Jefferson, right? Here's this military chieftain, right, whose only claim to fame, he's not a statesman. He hasn't read Locke, Voltaire, uh, all the great philosophers. Uh, one of Jackson's opponents at one point said, well, killing 2,000 Englishmen at New Orleans shouldn't make you president of the United States. But that's the, the climactic battle of the War of 1812, the Battle of New Orleans, January 8th, 1815, uh, where Andrew Jackson inflicts over 2,000 casualties on the British, loses over only 100 men in the entire campaign. And when the sort of the smoke clears from the battle and under a flag of truce, the British send over a note asking to, to stop the fighting, Jackson looks at the letter and it's from a lieutenant colonel and he realizes that's the highest ranking officer who's still alive on the British line. So just an incredible victory. And in the 19th century, January 8th was a, a major holiday. The people celebrated like we do the 4th of July today. So the War of 1812 propelled Andrew Jackson to political prominence. Made him a household name, yes. And he became president. Took him until 1828. The election was stolen from him. In 1824. You can't say that. Well, Jackson, censored. Jackson said it was stolen through bargain and corruption. And the guy who stole it, Henry Clay, uh, he called him the Judas of the West. And he said his end will be the same. Clay didn't hang himself like Judas, but when Andrew Jackson was on his deathbed, he was asked if he had two regrets. And he said, well, I didn't hang my vice president, John C. Calhoun, and that I didn't shoot Henry Clay. <laughs> And then he died. <laughs> and he said that with no regret whatsoever. That's, that's Andrew Jackson so, in a nutshell. Okay, so we've got the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812. There was another war that happened yeah. between the War of 1812 and the Civil War that most Americans don't know much about. Yeah, it's kind of a, a forgotten about war. Uh, it's the Mexican-American War starts in 1846. Uh, Texas has now become an independent nation as a result of the Texas Revolution. Uh, Texas is heavily in debt. It's a weak nation. The British are making overtures to bring it into their colonial orbit. Mexico still doesn't respect or thinks that uh, Texas is still a part of Mexico. To the United States of America, we decide to annex Texas, bring it into the United States of America. Uh, We make it a state, and so Mexico doesn't like this, uh, and so war starts, erupts. Uh, American troops were positioned along the Rio Grande River, and at least the American version was Mexican troops crossed the border, attacked American troops. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mexico would say that we, in fact, crossed the border to provoke a war. Who knows exactly what happened, but the war erupts in 1846. Well, another Tennessean, James K. Polk, is the president. At any point in time, did America reimagine its military? You talk about Jefferson and Madison. They weren't committed to a—and the Jeffersonian government— was the prominent or predominant governing yep. philosophy in America of the first yep. what fifty years of its existence? Good point. Yeah. Did at what point in time was it in the uh, the pre Civil War era American history when America did make a commitment to its military? No, again in the Mexican American War, you do have a bigger standing army, but it's all spread out in the frontier dealing with Native Americans. So the bulk of the fighting in the Mexican American War will be done by volunteer units. And so when the war first begins, the war was popular. Thousands of young men were rushing forward to volunteer. Uh, This is where, again, one of the reasons why Tennessee is the volunteer state. Uh, So many young men wanted to fight from Tennessee. 
they couldn't get spots in the Tennessee units. So a lot of young guys went to Mississippi, Louisiana, and fought in other states. And so, But again, right, these were just volunteer units raised for a temporary purpose. So as we're fighting as a, as a new nation, the, the War of 1812, <laughs> the, the Mexican-American War, yep. did we anticipate eventually fighting our, our own people? I mean, did we see a war in the state? I mean, when did we begin considering whether or not we were going to eventually go to war with one another over slavery? Yeah, it starts maybe in the 1850s is when it now starts. So that's to, shortly after the Mexican-American oh, War. Oh, for sure. And yeah. the, 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 the point I'm trying to make catalyst. is we were all on the same team until we weren't. Yeah. We were on the sure. same team in the Battle of uh, the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. We're on the same tw- team oh, for sure. in, the, in the American-Mexican War. We weren't on the same team in the Civil <laughs> War. When did we begin, or, or were there early anticipators sure. that this could be an eventuality? Well, it's the, many Americans at first supported the Mexican-American War. South Carolina's John C. Calhoun uh, did not, and he said this is going to be lead to some fruit from the poisonous tree. And Calhoun realized it's going to open up the can of worms. What's going to be the status of any territory we take from Mexico? Uh, are we going to allow slavery in it or not? And so, again, this becomes the big debate. Do we allow slavery to go west? Most Southerners would say, well, I can't grow cotton next to a cactus, but I can't yield the principle. Right, if, I, if the Yankees tell me I can't take my property in this part of the country, in the other areas that we might conquer, which would be certainly suitable to plantation agriculture, I will have lost the argument. And so once we start debating about where we can take slavery to slavery, follow the flag, then it just, by extension, you talk about the merits of slavery itself. And that's the point I'm trying to make. When we expanded as a nation, we debated slavery perpetually. Correct. Once you get I mean, to the right to the late 1840s, 1850s, it is the main topic. It consumes everything else in the political dialogue. I mean, I mean the, the Civil War was not spontaneous. I mean, it, it was it was a series of events oh, that sure. led us to to that. Mm-hmm. So when I've read about the Mexican-American War, the American-Mexican War, um, I've read what you just said. Do we or do we not allow slavery in these new territories right. as we expand the country as a result of the Louisiana a purchase? Sure. What did Jefferson? What did Jefferson argue for in relation to slavery when he executed on the Louisiana Purchase. Well, again, Jefferson, the famous saying, right, we have the wolf by the ears, and we cannot either hold him or let him go. And, and Jefferson realized this is the great the great contradiction. Jefferson himself uh, was a slaveholder. He he knew it was, it was wrong. It contradicted with what he had said in the Declaration of Independence. He was trying, he spent his whole life trying to find uh, a way out. And a lot of his... How do we know that? I mean, you, oh, you say that, but how do we know that Jefferson... Spent his entire life philosophizing or theorizing a way out. Well, Jefferson is a historian's dream because Jefferson was a pack rat. He preserved all of his correspondence. He he made copies of all of his notes. So again, everything that Jefferson wrote or said, uh, we have it. Jefferson had good handwriting. It's it's easy to decipher uh, what he said. Now the problem with Jefferson, I think I've said this before, is Jefferson would wake up at seven in the morning, say something outlandish, something radical. And he'd write it in a letter, send it to somebody. He talked to his friend James Madison maybe over lunch. And maybe they'd talk about that issue. And then Jefferson would write a letter at 7 o'clock at night before he went to bed, contradicting or reversing the position he'd taken a few hours earlier. So, again, any major issue, you can kind of find a letter or a statement from Jefferson kind of confirming your views. So what are the letters, what are the writings, what are the musings that lead us to believe that Jefferson was always in conflict about slavery? Oh, and this is an issue that kept Jefferson up late at night. I mean, Jefferson was, there are hundreds of 
Jefferson letters uh, dealing with the institution of slavery, trying to find a way out of this dilemma, be it compensated emancipation, gradual emancipation. There just wasn't much support. And that's where I was headed. So who were his chief opposition and who were those who said, yeah, maybe we could get to a better place together? Well, and when Jefferson is trying to deal with this in the 1790s, slavery is in decline. And but once, of course, Eli Whitney and the cotton gin, this is what sort of breathes new life into slavery. And so Jefferson's generation, as they're dying away, the younger guys who are coming up, this is all that they've ever known. And so this is their economic livelihood is tied to this. So Jefferson's sort of warning is that you need to get rid of this or maybe at some point gradually set your slaves free. These guys are like, uh-uh, I can't do this, man. I need more and more land. We need to expand slavery. There were more millionaires being created in Mississippi during the cotton, I don't know, oh, yeah. the, the, the advancement of the cotton industry than there were uh, bankers in London, England. At the time, yeah. Uh, that's pretty That's pretty wild stuff. But I mean, all that has to do with slavery. And I mean, obviously, when you don't have to pay for the labor, there's a higher profit margin. And um, and I mean, I've read a lot about the um, the number of millionaires created or that were made in Mississippi by cotton were, were outpacing the number of millionaires in London, which was the financial center <laughs> of the world um, sure. at the time. Dr. Bolt's going to hang around one more second, yeah, sure. but we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back to Wake Up Carolina. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. We're talking about early American history. This is a bit tutorial in nature, uh, but Dr. Bolt's kind enough to kind of um, give lectures and not get paid. <laughs> I but love he, it. he goes and does his day job <laughs> when he leaves here. But I want to stay in, in, the, in the, I'm talking about conflict and talking about, you know, the, um, the War of 1812, the, the, you know, the Mexican-American War. But, but there was also, maybe I'm not phrasing this right, I'll get your take on this, but we had to conquer the West. Once we purchased roughly a million acres west of the Mississippi for, what, $15 million, a little less yep. than a million square, Three not, not acre. acres, square miles, yep. a million square miles, a little less than a million square miles. I mean, imagine that for $15 million. That'll get you a lot in Sullivan's Island now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. crazy. What, or, or at least the Hamptons. Um, but, but so, so you know, 900-ish million square, 900-ish thousand square miles to be um, settled, to be explored. Lewis yeah. and Clark go yeah. out. Um, and to Jefferson's basement, they come back. <laughs> <laughs> I think he sent them out there saying, those guys will never come never back. Know. But, it, you, know, maybe we'll, you know, maybe they'll get the bad stuff out of the way. Is conquering the right word? I mean, were we out to conquer the West? And what did we do with the resistance? I mean, Native Americans were settling out right, West. They'd been there. Sure. I mean, if, yeah. we don't know how long. Yeah. But but when it comes to, I mean, is conquering the West the right phraseology? And what did we do with those who weren't crazy about America conquering land West of the Mississippi? If you're a younger, woke historian, then then yes, it's, the, it's a legacy of conquest and for my generation, who was kind of grew up on sitting on dad's or grandpa's knees watching the John Wayne movies, you know, the Cowboys and Indians, that's how we kind of saw the the West. But right, a lot of historians say that this is not the finest hour for the United States of America. Uh, some would even say or accuses of committing a genocide, a very strong word which will get people's attention. Uh, the truth is probably somewhere in between. Do we have any idea how many Native Americans lost their lives as a result Again, of American expanding no, into the Western territories? You only have estimates, and that's something if you really want to get historians and academics riled up. Yeah. 
So how did we name the properties west, the new territory, the new, um, you know, we double the nation's footprint. Yeah. And in one $15 million treaty, how did we decide, okay, this is Nebraska, this is Kansas, <laughs> this uh, this looks like South and North Dakota. You see where I'm headed? <laughs> sure, sure. It, no, it, it took a long while. And the ultimate irony is Jefferson buys the Louisiana Purchase, you know, all, all of this money. He said it would keep us a nation of farmers for, for hundreds of years. And, of course, how do we really tap into and take advantage of all of this land? It's the Hamiltonian system. It's the railroad. It's not until we really have this new form of technology, the iron horse, that we're really able to go out there and extract all of the wealth and, and maximize this land to its potential after the Civil War. When did that land become effectively um kind of kind of a net positive to the united states i mean obviously lewis and clark go out and explore sure they find these things they don't find other things i would imagine to your point there are a lot of things we don't want to talk about when it comes to encountering <laughs> some of the some of the native americans but at what point in time did that become a valuable asset i mean we know we got all this new property we got yep. this expanding to do at what point in time did we integrate that into the former american sure. economy no it's, it's after the civil war and once you get to the to the 1870s when the Industrial Revolution really takes off. So the ores, the minerals uh, that are out there now in the West. And so, again, this is where you see just in a, a rapid period of time, less than a decade, many of these Western states uh, will come into the Union. Uh, it takes Utah a long time to come into the into the Union as a state uh, because of the, the belief that, well, you can't admit Utah, they're all Mormons, uh, they're all practicing polygamy. And so old habits, old stereotypes uh, were still dying hard at that time. So what is the first state? I'm rambling now, but I, <laughs> my mind's going a million miles an hour. What is the first state to become a part of America separate of the 13 original colonies? Oh, let's see. Who is it? That's, you know, you got me now. Was it? Is it Kentucky, Vermont? Could have been. Yeah, one of those ones. Yeah. Separated Ohio from. Ohio was fairly early, was right? Really early on in the early But I don't 1800s. think it was early as Kentucky. No, no, no. Yeah, Kentucky, Vermont. I'm probably forgetting one. But yeah. And that would have been around what period of time? I mean, uh, that- in the 1790s, yeah. And Kentucky was originally part of Virginia, and Vermont was always in conf- and, uh, controversy whether part of New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut. So, yeah. So yeah. how did we settle those border disputes? I mean, how did we decide, okay, New York, you stop here. Vermont, you begin here. Um, New Hampshire, you start there. I mean, who settled some of those? Uh, usually, or, the old expression, the guys in the smoke-filled rooms. You'd get together. <laughs> and maybe the most famous border dispute is uh, Ohio and Michigan. And you had this event. It was called the Toledo War. And so what was the boundary of western Ohio? What was the border of southeastern Michigan? So eventually they drew the border. And so Michigan loses what it thought was a lot of its territory. But the concession was it got the Upper Peninsula. And it turned out to be this very, very all of these ores and minerals. Uh, so Michigan got the last laugh. In well, that one. Was there ever any interest in allowing Native Americans to become Americans? Some of the Native, I mean, they, they weren't called Native Americans, but they were yeah. called Natives. But uh, were there, were there, was there ever any politicking done at the national level deciding whether or not to allow some of the Natives to become American citizens? Well, the, the, the policy, when you see this with the Dawes Act, essentially to assimilate them, make them more like us, uh, make them adopt Christianity. Uh, the Native Americans won't receive citizenship until the Snyder Act in the 1920s. And so really had no political rights until that time. So what were they? I mean, the Trail of Tears. It was kind and of all- a, a weird sort of the, I think John Marshall and a Supreme Court called them a dependent class of citizens. So again, they weren't exactly the same thing as we were. Uh, 
but again, weren't entitled, couldn't bring suits in a federal court uh, if they wanted to, couldn't vote in elections, at least in a national election, if they wanted to. But they were allowed to live and exist and work and participate in the economy, excluding, right. exclusive of some of those. Provided they abide by the, the laws of the states where they lived in. How uh, many were there, Dr. Bolt? Do we have any idea? I'm sure somebody, some demographer could have an idea, but that's that's not in my wheelhouse, sorry. I got you. No, I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting to me. Okay, so Lincoln becomes, Lincoln comes on the political scene when? You've got the Jeffersonian continued by um, Andrew Jackson, yeah. both populist at heart. Um, you've got the Hamiltonian argument. So when does Lincoln b- begin to show his face as, a, as an American politician to be? Lincoln's a backbench politician, serves one term in Congress during the Mexican-American War, and was most famous for introducing a series of resolutions, which became known as the Spot Resolutions. And he wanted the president to point to the exact spot where the Mexican-American War started. It was really just for domestic consumption back in Illinois. Lincoln got a nickname, though. He was known as Spotty Lincoln because of this. Uh, But Lincoln, he had made an agreement he wouldn't serve a second term, so it goes back into political obscurity and then comes out of it in the 1854 when he becomes the leading Republican in the state of Illinois. So is there any overlap in Lincoln being a prominent American politician and the, had the Jeffersonian Hamiltonian debate ended by the time Lincoln became yeah. president of the United States? This is why you have slavery on steroids at this time. We've settled all the economic issues. You have the gold rush in California. You've got a booming economy. So nobody cares about the banking question. Nobody cares about the tariff anymore. It doesn't move the needle. What's the only issue the American people argue over? It's slavery. And then once you open up the can of worms, you start talking about it. Maybe a lot of people in the North who say, I don't really got a dog in this fight. But now suddenly they're taking positions and maybe poor Southerners are saying, well, I don't own any slaves, but they're attacking our way of life. They're attacking our society down here. So yeah, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to vote for this guy. And so again, if you're a Southern politician running for office, you can't get outflanked on the slavery issue. Right? You've got to be very, very strong, defensive. We need to add more territory so we can have uh, slavery should follow the flag. And if you're a Northern politician, you can't get outflanked. You can't let an abolitionist uh, get to the side of you. So again, you've got to call for the immediate end of slavery as well. So there's simply no middle ground in the 1850s. Were there any Southern politicians sympathetic to Lincoln's mindset or view on slavery i think there was an, an old joke that lincoln got 20 votes in some virginia county in 1860 and virginia officials were looking for the one guy who voted fraudulently 20 times uh, lincoln wasn't even on the ballot uh in the state south of virginia uh, you couldn't even vote for him if you wanted to now that would have been a, an incredible act of courage uh since you had to vote in public at this time but again this is what alienated so many Southerners that here is this guy who's president who didn't even get a vote you know, in many of the states, wasn't on the ballot, but yet he swept the North, all the free states, and got an, a majority in the Electoral College. So why does he get so much credit for persistence? I mean, his, his name is always connected to the persistent yeah. job. I mean, I've seen some of these PSAs. You know, here's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> right. He was an example or exemplary of, of persistence. Why? Well, the, the obvious, the easy thing would have been to just cut and run. If you're the, especially early on when the war was going so poorly for the North, a lot of people were upset saying, just, just let them go. They'll come crawling back on our hands and knees in many years. And Lincoln said, no, we can't. This is a permanent union. Uh, Lincoln got a lot of inspiration from Andrew Jackson's writings. And so as the casualties mounted up and as a lot of Northerners said, 
is this really worth it? Lincoln was the guy, the leader who, who held the country together and said, if democracy fails here, if a group of Americans can pack up their toys and leave because they didn't like an election, it's certainly not going to work in other parts of the world. And so Lincoln had a, a Winston Churchill, just a, a bulldog determination, if you will. In closing, is there a book or two or three that you would recommend someone read if they have an interest in the period of history you've devoted um, your livelihood to, that being early American history? Is there is there a recommendation you could make to our listeners who find these? I mean, I've, I've got two texts a second ago. Um, you know, they love this. I mean, it's kind of a recounting of history from someone who knows a lot more about it than I do. But is there something someone can read and to, to better understand what, what you have already read and well, understand? good. Lots of historians will write sort of just these grand arching syntheses uh, kind of covering, you know, 50, 60 years. Uh, one of the best ones is an older one. It's called The Age of Jackson uh, by Arthur Schlesinger. Uh, again, this really just set the, the stage uh, for kind of all the study, all the, the work of the 1820s up to the start of the Civil War. And if you're looking at it from, from the Civil War era, the very popular James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom uh, covers the 1850s and the Civil War era itself. So, yes, two excellent books. If you gave mom or dad those for Christmas, they're worst things you could give them. There you go. Worst things you could give them. Uh, and socks and, and underwear come to <laughs> no, mind. Dad doesn't uh, need another time. Yeah, or some um, or a fruitcake. I mean, that, that's always the old the old standard beer, fruitcake. Hey, good luck to your Tennessee Volunteers this week. They've yeah, got a tough yeah. one on their hands. This is our big chance. But they're at home in against Knoxville, Alabama. In Neyland. Uh, yep. you, you and I would agree now. Let's do this real quick. So there's a uh, there's a mid-tier in the SEC. There's an upper tier. Sure. And most recently has been Alabama and Georgia. Alabama and Georgia. Um, there's a mid-tier. Tennessee is beginning to become the obvious top of the mid-tier, right? South Carolina's trying to make itself yeah. into the mid-tier after a few years of disappointing seasons. Tennessee is honestly trying to escape from the mid-tier the into the upper tier. Yep. To uh, This Saturday is their opportunity at Neyland Stadium. I guess it's got to be the biggest game in Tennessee in at least a, at least a decade. This has been a one-sided robbery. Again, everybody knows third Saturday in October, the college football world would shut down when it was Tennessee and Alabama. So this is the first time in over a decade that this game has some juice to it. So I think game day is going to be there. So that's Tennessee usually loses when game day comes. To, to <laughs> well, everybody usually loses yeah, when they play Alabama. This is their yeah. second their second time game day has yeah. been there yeah. this year. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the game of the week. The game. But I mean, it's, a a story, it's a storied program, and yeah. I'll say this. I mean, you know, I'm a Gamecock, but college football is better when Tennessee's sure. good. I mean, it really is. Well, that Tennessee-Alabama game has a marquee associated with it. I mean, it, it's good for the sport, good for the game, yeah. obviously good for the SEC. Yes, indeed. Because once again, um, the ACC's had its issues by becoming – I mean, the ACC's a monopoly. It was one, a monopoly yeah. run by Florida State. Now it's a monopoly run by Clemson. Uh, the SEC for a few years was a monopoly run by Alabama. Now Georgia's Georgia turned it into a duopoly. So this will be Tennessee's chance to say, no, this isn't a Not two-headed so monster, but rather a three-headed monster. We shall see. Hopefully. Hope springs eternal. There you go. We'll take a break. Thanks, we'll be guys. back. In just a minute. I want to get back to the economy for just a second. It's always a treat to have Dr. Bolt come and explain some of the early American history. I, I mean, I know it. that's a different, but it kind of breaks. We break our stride to do that. But I do believe for 30 minutes every Tuesday morning, it's worth a recounting in a very academic way some of the American history that so many people are not familiar with and not uh, understanding of. Um, but it's still a conservative talk radio show. We got to get back to the, uh, the drumbeat. Uh, the storyline, um, I said this morning much earlier that I watched a video um, yesterday on CNBC of Mohammed el Arian. He is um, a former CFO of PIMCO, Bill Gross's big bond company. He is now, I think, a professor at Cambridge 
um, an advisor or chief executive, one of the big shots at Alliance or Allianz, and um, and it's somebody that I pay close attention to. He's not a sunshine pumper. He's not a um, a pimp or prostitute for good news. He's a guy that goes on CNBC with a with a high degree of understanding, a high degree of intellect, and 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 will call it like he sees it, whether Joe Kernan and Becky Quick like it or not. He was on yesterday morning, and he mentioned something that caught my attention, caught Becky's attention as well. Let's go to CNBC yesterday, and um, I think Allianz, big shot, <laughs> Mohammed El Arian. Economists fear that the Fed, humbled by staying too long and saying transitory, is now staying too long in terms of, of raising, and we don't know yet. We haven't had an earnings season. We don't know how it's really affecting things. We, they may break something. Uh, we may already be in a sharp slowdown. Maybe they stay at this party too long, the tightening party. You don't think so? So there's two elements to this. Can they stop? Can they pivot? No, they cannot. They cannot because the data doesn't give them enough of a green light. But importantly, that credibility has been hit really hard. Will they end up overdoing it? Most likely, yes. So they've gotten themselves into this hole. And unfortunately, they don't know how to get out of this hole. There's no ladder out of this hole. People have to realize there's no ladder out of this hole. Should we say, gee, you guys, your credibility was damaged. Now you've got to regain your credibility. Is that good for us and for the country that they have credibility? Or are we paying for their mistake with a recession that, that we really, you know, I don't feel like paying for their mistake with a recession just so they can get, regain credibility. Well, first of think? all, you, you have no choice but to pay for their mistakes. And that's one <laughs> of the tragedies of the situation. Yes, we are all going to pay for their mistakes. And some, are, some people are already paying. There was another concern that you brought up, Becky, this morning with Roger, which is it's not just about inflation, recession. It's also about financial stability. That's the third leg of this thing. So, yes, Joe, I don't know how we can avoid paying for this mistake because they have been late. They mischaracterized inflation as transitory. When they finally recognized their mistake, they didn't act. Remember, in the middle of March, when we printed the February inflation print over 7%, they were still injecting liquidity into this economy. That's last March. Mohammed, wait a second. When you say the third part of the equation, the financial stability, do you think there is the risk that things will be broken in the markets if they raise another 75 basis points? This is the most front-loaded interest rate hiking cycle we've had for decades. We're coming from zero interest rates. The whole system got conditioned to believe that zero interest rates was forever, that injections of liquidity were predictable, and now we're adjusting. The UK has given us a warning sign. But there are people in the market who still haven't taken the Fed seriously, so they have not gotten to themselves to a place where they're not going to have massive issues if the Fed doesn't slow down? So we have, first of all, this is the non-banks, not the banks. So yeah. that's the good news, because the banks are in the middle of the payments and settlement system. The non-banks are not. So that's, that's good news. Yes, there are certain. Um, you can start with the zombie companies who are finding it much harder to refinance. And if they can get refinancing, the cost of this refinancing makes their numbers look completely different. Mm -hmm. Then you can go to various investors who overlevered. That that's going to be an issue. So yeah, I, I'm, I, we have to keep an eye on the third element, which, which is financial stability. It's not just about inflation and growth. It's also about financial stability. That, that's almost an argument for slowing down and maybe only going 50 basis points of that at the next meeting, just because it's not going to help your credibility. If you're doing this for your credibility, things break and you have to instantaneously backtrack, like the Bank of England. I'm at 50. Okay, so this I'm is. I'm at 50. 
You're, they don't give a damn, but I'm at, I, I'm at 50. What, you think they'll do 50? No, I do, want them to do, I think they should do 50. They can't, they can't. I they absolutely can't. If they do 50, then we will be at this table talking about stagflation. So we have some people on saying, who was it, Mr. Wonderful? There are companies that are, they're not even noticing yeah. any slowdown at all right now. And then I don't know if I, I think that employment reports are, are lagging. So that could happen really quickly. We could see some issues there or maybe not. But. Is the economy really, really still strong? And is, is, can we use 3.5% as an actual real employment number right now? So, so I think the labor market is strong with one really important qualification, labor force participation. And that yeah. came down again. And remember, there's two answers to our issues, more labor force participation and more productivity. That is what we need. And that solves so many issues in, in the economy today. And the labor report was strong across the board except for labor force participation. Do you think, Mr. New Normal, do you think the new, because you, you sort of coined that term, do you think there's a new normal uh, in terms of how we do business and how we work in this country in terms of hybrid, remote? Uh, so, so I think of us as, and you're not going to like this, Joe, but as on a bumpy journey to a new destination. So what does the new destination look like? Yeah. First tighter financial conditions, no more zero interest rates, no more injections of liquidity, that's gone. People at home in their basement on Zoom calls? No, hold on, hold on. The second element is a different type of globalization. And the third element is we're gonna struggle at the global economy to provide high growth. We don't have potent growth models anymore. The US is in a much better situation than other countries, but the globe as a whole has issues. We're, we're in detox. I mean, we don't have any idea what it looks like. I mean, we're in a, I mean, what, what he's basically arguing that the, the quantitative easing, the 0% interest rates were normalized. Nobody could believe that lasts forever, but we were, uh, you know, we got addicted. I mean, if you take a drink of beer or liquor, you don't think you'll become an alcoholic. Some do. We became um, so uh, committed to that path forward. Hold on to that. We'll be back on the other side to continue. I want to get back to the economy and Fed, but right now we're four weeks out from our midterm elections. The races, it seems, are beginning to tighten in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Arizona, in Nevada, in Wisconsin. Those seem to be the states that most of us are paying close attention to. Um, are the polls going to be wrong this time or not? We had Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar with us yesterday at 9.05, and Robert led me to believe, he didn't give us a number, and he's got to be careful doing that. But he led me to believe that of the mainstream polling, the Republicans will probably outperform somewhere between two and four percentage points. I don't know that, but there's some data suggesting that that indeed could be the case. Um, Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. He's in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? We are doing well. So we're four weeks out. What is um what is the media narrative? on the midterm elections as we speak? Well, I think you nailed it, right? It's going to be close. Um, I think that, and listen, when you talk about the Senate, um, I, I sort of am planning on the, the possibility that when we go off the air uh, for Tuesdays from the night, we don't know uh, who the Senate majority leader is um, for a couple of reasons. One, let's talk about Georgia. Uh, that is a state uh, in which uh, you have to have 50% plus one to win the, the election. Otherwise, there is a runoff. Uh, that would happen in December. 
Um, we've seen that happen in Georgia before when you have a race as close as it appears to be between Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker. Um, you know, it's possible that, that, you know, it's like a 49, 48 type situation, right? Uh, with people voting third party or write-ins or whatever uh, the rest of the way. And so that's a race I'm looking at. Remember Alaska, uh, which is not considered a swing state, but could have some implications for Lisa Murkowski, uh, one of the senators, the Republican senators who voted to convict former President Trump in his second impeachment for the insurrection, uh, incitement of insurrection was the charge. Um, then they do what's called ranked choice voting, right? Um, that can take a long time to figure out because you kind of go through different rounds. People are eliminated and then votes are moved up for, for different candidates. You saw that, uh, for instance, in that special house race uh, with Sarah Palin a few weeks ago. Um, also can take a long time to count some of the votes in Alaska. You've got some rugged terrain out there, right? Um, you have to get, uh, you know, everything reported in. Um, and then you look at some of these other races that are just going to be close. Pennsylvania looks to be close. Arizona could be real close. Um, it can take a couple of days sometimes when it's real close, especially if you're in recount territory to get it all sorted out. So uh, we could be in a situation similar to uh, a couple of years ago, right, where we're kind of waiting uh, for a couple of days before we sort of see where the dust settles and how it all shakes out. Jared, one of the most interesting parts of this election, Trump's not on the ballot, but he kind of sort of is. The endorsement of several Joe candidates. Biden yeah, Joe Biden, <laughs> you, you better believe it. I mean, they, you know, they, um, the Biden administration, I mean, I, you know, Robert said yesterday from Trafalgar that of the candidates having the most success, it's running against the Biden agenda. You know, it's about inflation and the economy, yeah. not so much abortion and some of these other issues that the Democrats want to try to make it about. But, um, but have we ever had, is there a precedent of an election where a former president is so um, instrumental or involved in in how the election turns out. I mean, I can't think of one. Maybe you can. Former president, I can't. I mean, I don't. I mean, maybe like in the early days of the republic, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah, the Jeffersonian yeah, no, Hamiltonian days is what you're referring yeah, to. Like, I guess, like maybe then. Um, but um, no, it, especially in a midterm, right? Um, where a former president is so instrumental, it's hard to to, to think, right? Because usually. Um, presidents, former presidents, aren't as politically active um, as as uh, Donald Trump is. Now, certainly, you have former presidents who go out and campaign uh, for for other presidents, right? We've seen Obama do that. I think uh, Bush has been on the trail here in the last couple of weeks to uh, you know fundraise and, and and rise raise up the, uh, the the profile of some candidates, but. Nothing. I mean, Trump is still, you know, has these big rallies. And listen, I think to, you know, it's a, it, we know that that's a double-edged sword, right? We know that that Trump endorsement um, has been key to an awful lot of Republicans propelling through primaries and getting an awful lot of attention and an awful lot of support that they otherwise wouldn't get. But we know that the other side of that is it really motivates Democrats too, right? And so. Um, that's sort of the the balance, I think, that both parties are, are kind of reconciling with, right? I mean, Democrats uh, are going to tie every Republican uh, to Donald Trump, um, and that motivates their voters. But there is a question about how far you can take that when you have 
you know, the economy doing what it's doing right now and some of these other issues that Republicans are, are putting to the forefront. Yep, that's well explained, Jared. I can tell you this, uh, the, the Trump involvement is good for conservative talk radio, rest assured. Um, it, reflect, <laughs> it reflects on our well, ratings. And, and election season's always good for, for those of us that rely on those ad sales. Yeah, you better believe it. Jared, <laughs> thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. <laughs> All right, take care. Got kind of an interesting take from inside uh, the Beltway. Uh, I look while Jared is talking and... Um, 538. Once again, not a pollster, but more of an analytic company. They've got the Republicans winning the House 70 out of 100 times. They've got the Republicans winning the Senate 33 of 100 times. Uh, once again, this is modeling and take it for what it's worth. Um, the Cook Political Report. I think this is interesting. And Robert actually texted me yesterday and said, hey, where did you get that from? I mean, it's on 538 site, but the, the Cook Political Report in the last four federal election cycles has seen 72% of their races, uh, the races they call a toss-up, won by the Republican. And the point I try to make is if that race is a toss-up, that number should be 52-48, 51-49, 50-50 would mean I'm getting it exactly unless right. Unless they're skewing the uh, un- results. Un- unless they're skewing the results, and I think they're skewing the results. The first mainstream Republican I've heard say something similar to what we discussed on this show yesterday is Ari Fleischer. He was on Fox News yesterday uh, or last night and said that he expects the Republican to overperform somewhere between two and four percentage points. And what is the African-American former um, congressman from Tennessee? Um, He's on Fox News. He's on Uh, the five and whatnot. Harold Ford. Harold Ford. I mean, Congressman Ford said, you know, I don't disagree with that. I mean, there's some pretty good evidence out there that shows you know, the, the Republicans going to outperform their polling. Well, if the Republicans outperform their polling by somewhere between two and four percentage points, they're going to win Nevada. They're going to win Ohio. They're going to win Pennsylvania. They're going to win Georgia and they're going to win Arizona. They're going to win Wisconsin. Now, now once again, who knows how accurate the polling is this time? I think the other analogy Robert gave was very interesting. Um, if the drawer checks up short, or checks up wrong every night, and you go to the cashier and you say, hey, you're making mistakes. And she says, well, I just don't understand this new system of doing things. And and it favors her one day and the store the next, and her the next and the store the next. And you would believe those that she doesn't understand the system. I mean, there is something there she's having trouble with and not being able to make the books balance as they should by the time she closes her drawer, so to speak. But if she makes 30 mistakes and all 30 are in her favor, you got to be suspicious of what her motivations are, right? I mean, the drawer checks up wrong every night for 30 consecutive nights, and it's always against the store and to her advantage. I mean, you, you can't say... Are they mistakes? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, well, I don't understand the system. Looks to me like you understand it real well. You know, when you're, you're designing or you're playing the system to your to your advantage, and, and I think that's the point Robert tried to make yesterday. If the polling was wrong equally on behalf of Democrats and Republicans, then you could say they just don't they don't do a real good job of um of getting it right. But that's not the case. The polling, once again, the, the proof is in the pudding. Seventy two percent of all toss ups by the revered Cook political report have the Republican winning. That's not a toss up. If somebody's winning nearly seventy five percent of those races, then they're being called a toss up when they shouldn't be. They should be a lean Republican. But if you lean that Republican, guess what? You may um, you may discourage some Democrat participation. If the Democrat in Ohio sees that J.D. Vance is um, likely to be 
the senator, what is his motivation to go vote and talk two or three of his friends into going? That's that's what I've always said. And um, and the science behind the polling is not really the science, but more the narrative creating. And, and, and Robert said something, you know, more than anything, I want to be right. I mean, I don't want to have egg on my face. I, I don't have the luxury of having the media running interference from me. I mean, if the media says, you know, that um, we understand why the pollsters got it wrong because the Trump voter, you know, at their core is a liar. They just won't answer correctly. Robert says, I, you know, I'm not going to have the luxury. Rest assured, guys, if Trafalgar has a bad election cycle, everybody on this planet will know about it. I mean, you're nodding your head. Of you course. agree? With, I mean, if Trafalgar, who has been uh, a little more favorable to the Republicans and the Trump orbit, I mean, if they get it wrong, it will be broadcast from Times Square to Beijing. I mean, it will be on every big screen man has ever known. Trafalgar is a, you know, a huckster. I mean, we always knew it. Now we've proven it. But what happens if, if Robert and a couple of others, Rasmussen comes to mind, um, you know, they, they, their polling reflects a better positioning of Republican office holders they're more accurate, and candidates. Again, if, if they're more accurate, again, then um, what does it say about some of the um, some of the traditional, historic, mainstream political polling? I, I don't know. I'll say this: I mean, I want every Republican running for office to win, and I'm doing something I've never done in my life. I'm encouraging everybody listening to my voice who has an interest in stopping a socialist agenda. Go vote Republican. I mean, I've always been one of these, I hear I go libertarian, one of these live and let live Republicans. You know, I'm going to do my thing. You go do yours. I think there's too much at stake. And I think every time we don't vote for as bad as the Republicans are in certain places, and I totally understand it. I understand Breeze's point. I understand the concern someone had this morning about, you know, getting an email from Lindsey Graham's office encouraging you to go get vaccinated. Uh, To me, that's not the true Republican thing to do. The Republican thing, I mean, if I'm U.S. Senator from South Carolina and somebody sends me an email about their health care, you know what I'm going to tell them? Go talk to your physician. I mean, make that in consult with your physician. Do not trust a U.S. Senator about getting a vaccine or not. I'm not the guy to ask. Don't ask a radio show host, nor do you ask a U.S. Senator about whether or not you should go get a vaccination. Take that up with your health care provider. That should be the standard answer from a conservative Republican, but for whatever reason, um, you get to Washington, you get heavily influenced by the effects of Washington, and out of that comes a um, an email that I, as a conservative, am a little bit uncomfortable with when someone says, yeah, we're encouraging people to go get vaccinated. Based on what? I mean, based on what? We know the science now is shaky at best. I mean, I could argue it's fraudulent. Now, was it intentionally fraudulent, or that did, did they just get it wrong? Don't know. I'll probably never know. The answer to that, but it's shaky at best. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, good morning, Dave. Uh, not only did we know we got Jersey Mike, now we got Papico Mike. Uh, I'm telling you, I give you credit, man. Uh, my mama, my mama's been dead for a long time, but she talks to me every day and. I'm sure you had to go through that too. I, I would ask that guy, what's his name, Robbie? Uh, tell me more about this triple dip La Nina. I am that 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 fascinates me. And I was you guys were talking about uh, sounds like a Baskin Robbins ice cream to me. <laughs> that was funny. I don't know, man. Um, I, I I like these Spanish girls, so I uh, let's leave it to that. But anyway, uh, 
we talk about Phillies and Braves. Uh, you know, Aaron Judge, he had 62 home runs. Who was the leader in home runs in the National League? Oh. Don't know. Mike knows this. Yeah, it was Kyle Schwarber. There you go, my okay. man. But see, here's what's interesting about that is that these guys are leadoff hitters. Could you imagine back in the day that a guy could hit 218, hit 46 home runs, and strike out 200 times, and he's a leadoff hitter? So the world's changed. But, Ken, good question for you. Why would you vote for John Fetterman? Mm, wears hoodies, has tattoos. <laughs> um, figured out a way to not work until he turned 45. <laughs> <laughs> So you tell me, we've got a guy that wears hoodies, he's got tattoos, and he's mooched off the government, and he's leading the polls. Uh, that that fascinates me because I look at Dr. Oz. Uh, I don't think I've ever watched the whole Dr. Oz show. I flip through the channels. I mean, he's used to having the applause sign with the studio audience. But why would you vote for a guy? I mean, hoodies, to me, when I used to be a young guy, play football, this, that, I, I just kind of like a hoodie. It's cold one day, windy. Uh, you had a little, where you put your hands in the little pockets there and play football. But nowadays, a hoodie, to me, is people walk around in July with hoodies on. Especially, let them wear a mask, too. And what are, what, man, kind of up to no good. Tattoos, I don't want to get involved in that, but read the Bible about that. Uh, but a guy that's mooched off the government, just like Bernie Sanders. People think Bernie Sanders some hero. Bernie Sanders ain't no hero. And, and, and these people that cross over the border, send them to Vermont. Don't send them to uh, these other places. Send them to Vermont. You see how racist those people are up there. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843 0937. There's got to be a little respect paid to a guy who figured out a way to not work until he's 40 some odd years old and then is a front runner in a U.S. Senate race. I mean, you got to give the guy a little bit of credit. I mean, I don't know what sort of credit he deserves. I don't know. Either. But to not work until he's in his 40s and wake up one morning with a 50% chance to be a member of the U.S. Senate, I mean, is that luck? I mean, have all the breaks gone his way or is he, is the joke on all of us? <laughs> The joke may be on all of us. Let's go to the phone. Uh, next is Ray in Florence. Hello, Ray. Uh, yes, this is Ray Kingsbury. I was just wanting to do, give a shout-out about the uh, Florence County GOP meeting tonight. Uh, Russell Fry is going to be our special speaker. Uh, start off with some food, and I think you'll enjoy the, the evening. Uh, also, next Saturday, we're going to have a stump meeting at, uh, at uh, 1611 uh south irby and uh it'll start at, at uh, 10 o'clock and uh, the lieutenant governor will be at that meeting so the first one will be russell fry and it'll be start at 6 30 to, uh tonight at the mcclennigan uh, uh florence one annex and uh just love to have you there and uh and we'll have a lot of candidates there uh to uh You'll be able to, to talk to them about uh, what they believe and, and how, how you should be voting. 
So, Thank you, Ray. Uh, Appreciate that. Good luck with your event tonight. Let's go to the phone, take another call. And, and Russell Fry, by the way, will be in studio with us uh, tomorrow on the show yep, at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Tomorrow morning, Russell Fry will be here. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Tim and Pamplico. Hello, Tim. Hey, good morning there. How's my buddy doing up there, Kim? Hey, Tim, how are you? All right. Look here. Just a couple things. They just pop into my mind. You know how we are out here in the country down here in Pamplico, out here on the farm. Things just pop into your mind. Okay, so... You know, I, I kind of went over the fuel thing here a while back, you know, about how we saved the whales and all of that. But let me ask you this. Has these people thought if we do away with petroleum product and we got to fix all these roads and infrastructure, what are we going to use for asphalt? Now, I'm sure the people are going to say, well, well, we'll use concrete. Well, okay, there goes your pricing on it. You can go ahead and triple your budget then. All right, so now I'm going to go to the next the, what the guy had here a minute ago. Why would you vote for Fetterman? He, like you said, he's made a living mooching what, and leading. Well, we already had one that leads this mooched off the country all his life. Well, there's been several, but one's Bernie Sanders. The other one, of course, has been Joe Biden has done absolutely nothing. But with Bernie Sanders, he's proposing just like Fetterman, all this, what I'm going to give you and what you're going to get and all this, it's uh, what's being taught to the kids in school. They think that they're going to get a utopian society where they don't have to work, where everything's furnished to them. And a lot of people, there's a lot of adults that believe it, but it's never going to happen. You'll never have it. But um, it was just a couple of things, you know, that randomly pop into old country boy's mind out here and just wanted to shoot it out there and see what you thought about him thank you tim appreciate it my man i know where tim comes from he knows exactly where i come from um you can put anything you'd like on a sheet of paper i mean you can theorize or hypothesize about anything bill rose out of concrete find a replacement for asphalt um i mean that that's the world of words and speeches and some democrats believe that's an accomplishment the written word is nothing more than the written word the spoken word is nothing more than the spoken word. Some people write in, I'm a big Jefferson fan. I mean, Jefferson was a brilliant writer. Uh, there have been great speakers, Reagan and Obama come to mind, great orators, the ability to give a speech. But because you say it doesn't mean it's true. Because you write it doesn't mean it's reality. How do you replace, I mean, if we're going to build all this infrastructure and make all these enhancements and improvements, how do you do it without a petroleum-based product? I mean, I'm waiting. Maybe there's some carbon fiber out there that I've not heard about. Maybe it's sufficient or affordable. But but once again, the written word is nothing more than the written word. My father said a lot, you know, son, I've never seen a sheet of paper that wouldn't let you write on it. I mean, think about that. I've never seen a sheet of paper that wouldn't let you write on it. What is that? It's, 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 a, it's a sheet of paper with a bunch of words on it. It's somebody who has the ability to give great speeches. At the end of the day, how do you implement? How do you make that into a reality? That's where the rubber hits the road, and the rubber's made out of petroleum. <laughs> the road True. made out of petroleum. Good luck with no fossil fuels. When the rubber stops hitting the road, <laughs> it's the day that we stop with petroleum-based products. I mean, rubber has a lot of oil in it. Asphalt has a lot of oil in it. What are those? Fossil fuels. Back in a minute. Let's touch on this real quick. I had this written down first thing this morning. It's um, 9.32. Hadn't gotten to it yet. Uh, Monmouth Poll came out yesterday with some information that basically corroborates or affirms uh, much of what we suspected. This election is going to be a referendum 
on Biden's handling of the economy, inflation, and crime. I mean, when you look at the number, uh, once again, this is not a Rasmussen or a Trafalgar poll, but rather Monmouth, which normally leans a little bit biased toward uh, the Democrat calls or the liberal calls. 82% of voters say inflation is, ex- they're extremely concerned about inflation. 72% they say they're extremely concerned about crime. Now, they actually took inflation and the economy and lumped them into one question. Um, 82% are going to probably, I mean, if you're extremely concerned about it, you're probably motivated to vote for or against the guy or lady who you think will do the best job. Um, 49, excuse me, 56% abortion. So abortion's underwater by 35-ish percentage points. Abortion is going to play in some districts. Some of the House races may be decided not on abortion, but partially because of abortion. Abortion right now is not going to swing a Senate race. It may in some of these districts that are much smaller and marginal. I mean, it could become a bigger issue. Um, I mean, in other words, if you've got a Democrat who has been critical of the Biden administration, not voted for them on some of the um, some of the economic policies, that person, I mean, that, that, that race could um, raise the, or, or heighten uh, the issue of abortion. But the majority of these elections, every Senate election that we're having is going to be about inflation, the economy, and crime. I saw yesterday or the day before, might have been Sunday when I read this in one of the Pennsylvania newspapers, that 71% of all the money Dr. Oz is spending in advertising is spending on crime. I mean, it's talking about Fetterman's soft on crime. Fetterman wants to defund the police. Fetterman wants to endorse some of these um, lax, uh, what am I trying to say, these um, sentencing, lenient sentencing requirements, um, and it's working. I mean, it's really resonating in the electorate. Um, immigration, I think, in Ohio will be a bigger issue than abortion when J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan, and Robert said it, I didn't. Robert said it yesterday. Um, if, if, if Ohio doesn't go J.D. Vance's way, the Republicans have bigger issues than we ever imagined they do. Ohio and Florida are the first two states that were real swingy to now be leaning in one direction or another. You know, kind of interesting because we've been concerned, and I don't know the answer to this. Robert, I trust him with the data. But uh, remember yesterday when I told the story of being at a sports bar in Pauley's Island and the oh, crowd yeah. erupted, and I thought something had happened in the Georgia, you know, Auburn football game because we're in SEC country, and I realized the Cleveland Guardians, formerly the Cleveland Indians, and my wife was pretty funny about that. The Cleveland Guardians, that's stupid. Why is that? I said, well, the Indians were offensive. She said, well, the Braves aren't. And I said, well, I mean, don't, don't, don't say that out loud, you know, because that'll, that'll probably be coming next. So I want to say this about my wife. And for husbands my age, really like, oh, Lord. Um, if you're my age and your wife is dealing with a certain change in life, you, you're kind of chuckling. I mean, you know where I'm headed? I, I mean, if, you, if you're a man my age and, you're, and your wife is a fastly approaching this period of her life where um, things change, I'll just leave it there. Um, you, you better buy you some, some flannel pajamas, man. Because you're going to freeze to death. I mean, I feel like I'm sleeping in a NASCAR, uh, just a um, a wind tunnel. I mean, there's fans blowing, there's ceiling fans blowing, the air conditioner's going wide ass open, and I'm about to freeze in the bed. And I feel like I'm sleeping in a Category Three hurricane or a NASCAR wind tunnel uh, because she's having to deal with this change. And I think, you know, 
the body temperature <laughs> readjust <laughs> when the female goes through that change in life. So um so maybe we can start a group, not AA, but um uh MA. <laughs> is that fair Just leave you know, right, husbands right. of ma right. uh, <laughs> i'm telling you man um it's come if you're 40 something and you, you know i mean i don't know it happens at different times at different places for different women but um it's happened recently for mine and um and once again I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I just feel like somebody's throwing me out of the house. I'm in a category four hurricane or I'm in a NASCAR wind tunnel, you know, in, 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 uh, strapped on the back of one of these Gen X cars or new gen cars or, or whatever. But, um, but back to my wife, I don't know why I rambled off on that, but you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Yep. The, um, the body temperature, I think in the female readjust and everything makes them hot. Well, it doesn't make me hot. You know what I mean? <laughs> But I've got to live and endure under those circumstances. M-A. Yeah, and, and I'm about to freeze. Because, I, you know, getting older, I mean, I had a buddy of mine ask me recently, hey, uh, we're about the same age, yeah? You get colder easy. I said, I do now. I mean, I didn't think I did, but, about you know, every time I walk in the house, I'm like hunkered down with coffee and hoodies and mittens and all these other sorts of things for free or, fear of frostbite. Um, but, but yeah, M.A., that would be it. That's funny. Menopause Anonymous. Right. Um, but, I followed <laughs> Uh, I knew you did because mm-hmm. um, we've had that conversation before. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're at Polly's and yeah, back to the sports. Yeah, part back of to the sports story. Please. Well, I mean, my wife's the one that said, "Well, that's dumb. I mean, that's real stupid to not let the team be called the Cleveland Indians." But, but the crowd erupts. I think something's happened in the Auburn Georgia game because I'm in the South. But no, 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 no. It's the Cleveland Guardians have had a solo home run in the fifteenth inning to win their baseball game, and um, and it it dawned on me. I said, "Are we?" making south carolina are those people coming down here with liberal biases and robert said no they're coming down here to escape from some of the big government the high taxes uh the crime some of the other issues that they blame liberal policies on because my concern is um all of these folks move from blue states into our red state do they make our state more or less red Robert believes they make our state more red. It's a different shade of red. It's not a Bible Belt red. It's not a, or, you know, I mean, the South is real religious. I mean, Freehold knows that. He's nodding his head. I mean, the South's famous for what? Having a lot of churches. I mean, a town of 1,000 people has 12 churches. Uh, six people go to each, but still, you know, we got 12 churches. Um, because somebody got mad at the first Baptist church, and they started a second Baptist church. And then two people got mad at the second Baptist church, so they started a a second first Baptist church, or, you know, maybe even a third Baptist church. And before you know it, you got a thousand people and you got 12 churches and every parking lot on Sunday morning only has nine cars and they're having trouble balancing the budget, but you know, they'll figure that out in due time. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a different shade of red, but it's red nonetheless. And I've always referred to these people as Giuliani Republicans, fiscally conservative, um, tough on crime. Don't put up with any BS, but stay out of my bedroom. Stay out of my private life. Stay out of my personal affairs. I'm good. I mean, you know, I'm as conservative as you are, except when it comes to the orthodoxies of church and religion. And then I'd probably rather be left alone when some of the uh, entrenched conservative beliefs in South Carolina are are very spiritual in nature. They're very religious in nature. Doesn't make anybody better than anybody else. And at the end of the day, whether you go to church or not, whether you believe in, you know, the gospel or not, we're voting on a government. We're voting on a government to do what? To pass policy, to make laws. And and I think if you are a Giuliani Republican in Horry County, um, cheering for the Ohio State Buckeyes, 
or a uh, you know a real conservative Bible Belt believing or Bible believing conservative Republican, we need to understand that yeah we have that nuanced difference and it's fundamental in a lot of our lives, but we still want to govern in a more conservative fashion. We want lower taxes. We want less intervention. And um, and I want South Carolina to stay red. Now, I do believe Charleston's a little bit different. Charleston is eclectic. It's a um, it's where skinny jeans wear, worn by grown men holding poodles aren't frowned upon. You don't see a lot of that in, um, in Paulie's. You see some of that, but not much. The, the only place you see Charleston in Horry County or Georgetown County is in the fresh market. And I've told you, when I walk into the fresh market in Polly's Island, I have this burning desire to just yell to the top of my lungs, MAGA. I mean, I just wear, wear your red hat. I, I, want, I want to wear my baseball, my Make America Great Again baseball cap. I want to drive my gas-guzzling, you know, GM or Ford pickup. I, I want to have a little bit of tobacco, not a lot. I don't want to offend you. A little bit of tobacco spit in the corner, maybe hardened, just a touch, uh, a stain in the corner of my mouth, and I just want to yell, MAGA to the top of my lungs and um but but yeah charleston would be uh, a little less traditional to south carolina than ori and georgetown but i don't believe those um dare i say transplants <laughs> i don't think they're going to fundamentally reshape our state to be less conservative in fact i think they make it more conservative I how do we so. know that i mean well i mean think about it rev trump had i mean ori county was the most i mean that's a percentage more people as a percentage voted for Trump in Horry County than any county in our state. Now, Greenville County had 110,000 Trump voters. Horry County had about 90,000 Trump voters. Um, and Greenville and Horry are very different. One would be kind of the buckle of the Bible Belt. The other would be kind of a Giuliani Republican, um, not as traditional South Carolina as um, historically has been the case. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Hey, Bobby. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I guess the Braves are going to start off their uh, run for the championship today. So uh be looking out for that and watching that today. But um, the reason I called is I, a few years back, uh, well, it's been a number of years now, that I used to work in Myrtle Beach every week uh, for a few days. And I remember at that time I was in Lowe's, and everybody I talked to had a northern accent. And um, I just couldn't understand what was going on at that time. I'm like, why? Why everybody in here? It's like it's like everybody from the north has come down here and taken over the jobs over here or something, you know. And I, I was worried. I was concerned about it at that time because I'm thinking that they're going to come down, you know, with their with their politics and change things. And uh, so I was really glad to hear y'all talking yesterday and today about how that. That, that doesn't look like that. It looks like that they're actually coming down here. They're one of us as far as voting Republicans. So that's really encouraging to hear. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. 48 new people are moving to Horry County every day. There are as many people dying in Horry County as as being born. I mean, the, the, the birth and death rate are about neutral to one another. They got a lot of older people, retirees that have moved down there. But, but there's a mass... I mean, a net population plus 48 per day in Horry County. And Robert has convinced me through his data collecting and analytics that it's probably making Horry County even more conservative than it was. It's less religious. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's less Bible belty, but it's more conservative 
than it ever has been. And uh, and that's good for all of us. I mean, it's really good for, I mean, let's select more Republicans, more conservatives, and hold those folks accountable uh, once the time comes. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, the Georgia-Auburn game was on a television probably 35 inches. The the Cleveland game, uh, baseball game, and the Ohio State-Michigan football game were on the big televisions. So here I am, a Southern boy, in a place I kind of grew up spending my summers and, you know, vacations going to. And I'm looking around, and, I, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody, put, hey, can you put that Georgia-Auburn game on the big TV and turn that stupid Michigan State-Ohio <laughs> State game off? I was outnumbered significantly outnumbered and i guess it's um it's the way the coast of south carolina has progressed back in just a minute this is our takes tuesdays to make friday's edition <laughs> yeah, of trivia that? thanks to our good friends at pepsi florence got real sidetracked yesterday we realized at the last moment didn't want to do them a disservice make sure we get the entirety of the contest in thanks to our good friends at pepsi of florence they're good to us whether it's monday tuesday wednesday thursday or friday but um yeah this is the takes tuesdays to make Friday's trivia. You'll still get a Takes Mondays to make Friday's t-shirt and a six-pack of Pepsi product. Here's our question. You ready? Ready. We talk a lot about radio. How important is radio? What changes has radio brought to um, the way we communicate one with another? We talk about the internet and podcasting and all these other sorts of things, but radio is still a broadcasting medium that is highly effective in connecting, you know, the masses. What does FM stand for? Hmm. What does FM stand for? It's easy to say, we're on the FM radio. We're not on the, we're on the FM dial. I know. Turn it to 95.3 on the FM dial. <laughs> I figured you would. What does FM in radio verbiage stand for? 843-661-0937 is our number. Hi, you are on the air. Do you know the answer? Frequency modulation. You're right. Who is this and where are you calling from? Tim and Orangeburg. Uh, did you have to Google it or did you know it? No, I knew it. Okay, good deal. Good all deal. Right. You're, you're, right. Thank you. Appreciate it, Tim. I'll hang, hang on a second. We'll get you back to Freehold. He'll get all your um, pertinent information so we can get you your Pepsi product and your Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Do we do, do, do T-shirts take Tuesdays to make Fridays? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Uh, we, that's a faux pas on our <laughs> um, on our side. And you have people from Pamplico and people from Paris speak fluent French. <laughs> Oh, pa. <laughs> I had a couple of folks text me a second ago, preach it on this menopause thing. <laughs> Men my age are freezing to death all over America, and nobody's doing I, anything about support, it. Uh, start the yeah. MA support group. Maybe that is my campaign <laughs> slogan. Let's stop middle-aged men from freezing to death <laughs> in their wife's bed because they're going through this. It, it all started when they bit the apple, right? I mean, that's, that's what Archie Bunker said. I mean, Bunker said the majority of female problems and issues come from making that fatal mistake, and the man wasn't smart enough to condemn it. I mean, he said, well, I mean, I'm going along with her, I guess. If, if she says it's, it's, it's what we should do, then I'll, um, I'll blindly and loyally follow. And um, the rest, as we say once again in Francais and Pamplico, is histoire. histoire. Yeah, histoire. <laughs> um, frequency modulation means what, Rev? Uh, well, what does it mean? Yeah, I mean, what, what does I mean? What yeah, I know it, it, it's a modulated frequency versus AM, which is amplitude modulation. Okay. Um, so it says FM is short for frequency modulation, which refers to the means of encoding the audio signal on the carrier frequency. Yeah, there's a there's an FM carrier that carries. So the, why is FM clearer than AM? Why is it of better quality than AM? 
You know, I wish I could answer that. We need to have our engineer Stu on the line to, to say, but I but think I mean, it, there's probably, a reason, it, it right? has something to do with the way the, <clears throat> the, the frequency is carried through the carrier, and it gives you a, a wider spectrum of frequencies and Okay, last question. Why can I, at times, pick up an AM station a million miles away? I never can with an FM. Uh, FM is typically line of sight, so uh, the signal will go off the curve of the Earth, and the AM signals can bounce off the atmosphere and follow the curve of the Earth. Okay. How'd that sound? That sounded very um, informed and like someone who knew what they were talking about. Hey, we'll talk tomorrow.